Hello again, friends! And you are our friends, and welcome back to another edition of Jim Cornette's Drive-Thru, episode 300! <laughs> yeah, it didn't work. Didn't sound that good. That was our goddamn budget for the day for the special effects. That's all right. Oh, fuck your slide whistle. All right, well, this is Jim Cornette's drive-thru. I'm your host, the great Brian Last. And here is the star of the drive-thru, the man responsible for this show, Mr. Jim Cornette. Oh, God damn it. Now it's episode 300 because you get mad that you can't outsound affect me. You just had <laughs> just give me the cold tag, iceberg tag. My hands are are bitten with frost. I did not frost concede bitten, that. I say. I didn't concede that. That's colder than the tag that dog gave to Watson a Superdome. Good lord. All right, so it's episode number 300. And am I to understand that we believe that we now have full cable coverage? On this episode, is that what I'm I'm understanding? I believe so. Cable penetration nationwide. We're on the satellite. We, we should be penetrated everywhere. the entire nation. We got we got we have fully penetrated not only the nation but the world with the new, improved space age gourmet restaurant quality, high dollar platform or server or megaphone or whatever the fuck it is we're using now to to avoid any potential issues with the technical problems people have had in the past because of a another party that we'll have more on with the experience this week that we have ixnayed out of this equation he's figured out not figured in and now everything should be moving seamlessly and flawlessly is this correct this is correct yes well good that's two things we got fixed this week. My phone's back, Brian. Hey, all right. I guess the the town's back to normal. No, now people are goddamn calling me. So it's back to normal, all right, but it's not good. But no, there was nothing wrong with the town. I was lied to. AT&T is on the list now, too. Hold on here. AT&T? <laughs> See, we even got all kinds of sound effects. We're going all out on this program. Remember, I told you on the experience that we did, but since some people have been missing the podcast, which are, by the way, up on the official YouTube channel, official Jim Cornette, it's, it's all there. You don't have to miss anything. Catch it over there, and now we're all caught up. But I said on the last program, we had severe thunderstorms, not as bad as we've had in the last six months or so, but a severe thunderstorm a week ago Sunday night. The next day, I pick up the phone to make a phone call, and I don't have a dial tone. I've got meh. And so I mentioned that, as I later found out, nobody could call me. It would just be automatically disconnected, and I obviously could not call anybody out. So when I get, and Stacy's at her mom's house for her mom's birthday, so I get the cheap cell phone that I've got that I keep in my truck and never use, and call AT&T. Where I am put on the phone after some procedural difficulties, finally get a human being, but he ain't from here. I, he might be from Nepal. I believe Bangladesh was a candidate. I don't know where he's from, but he ain't local. And he's telling me what's going on in Louisville, Kentucky. And after he leaves me on hold for quite a while and comes back with a an update, he has consorted with one of the 
high muckety mucks that know more than he does and said there's been an issue in the area. They already know about it. Lines would have ripped asunder or whatever the fuck he, it is he said. And it's been reported and they're going to be working on it. What's the estimated time of repair? One week. What the fuck? I mean, I, did I miss that some foreign power dropped a nuclear bomb on the AT&T Center in Shepherdsville or somewhere, right? All right. So it's 4th of July week anyway, and, and Stace gets back home at the end of the week. People, if they need to, if the three or four main people in my life, if they need to get a hold of me, they can find me. And otherwise, I'm on vacation, right? But seven days passes, the one week, I ain't got shit, but eh. So I call again. This time, I can't even get a person. I get on the automated thing, and they say, this trouble has already been reported. Like, I'm no shit. But it's a robot. So I can't say no shit to the robot. It doesn't comprehend that. Artificial intelligence hadn't got to no shit yet. So then it says, you have reported trouble of having noises and voices on the line <laughs> what now how am i gonna argue with a fucking robot again and go yes yes stop the voices they're telling me to do bad things and it automatically says we'll dispatch a repair person <laughs> so all you got to do to get your phone fixed is tell people that the voices in your or tell a robot that the voices in your head are telling you to do bad things or on your phone, one or the other. Did they send a technician or a paranormal? So, well, this, this, little, this little short elderly woman with an accent. Showed up. She waved this little fucking trinket. No, so anyway, then it, it doesn't. I'm thinking, well, I gave them the cell phone number last week. But they didn't give me an option to give them the cell phone number that I can be contacted at. So how is this technician going to... Because it says if the technician needs access to your house, he'll call you to... All right, I'm just... I'm going to see, right? Well, I'll be a son of a bitch. Wouldn't you know who won the pony? By about 1 or 2 o'clock that afternoon, the AT&T phone truck is pulling up the drive. And I'm like... I. I talked to an actual person that told me it'd be a fucking week and just sit there and hold my peat in hand. But I talked to this robot and mentioned that the voices in my head are telling me things, and this guy's here in four hours. So he's already he's got outside on the on the pole and he's got a dial tone at my pole. So there was and and I told him what had happened in the conversation that I'd had with whoever on the phone and he said there's no fucking problems here there's no no and i said and i've got a dial tone right there at the pole right he said yeah somewhere between the pole and your house is the issue so i that could have saved me a week if this motherfucker hadn't fucking i don't know where he thought things were bad whatever so moving on this guy comes in a garage now where the phone at my breaker boxes and the cable and everything comes in there, right? Where it's, it goes underground from the pole and then it comes into the house and it, it ends up there. And then it's distributed and disseminated to the various points in the house. And he opens a little box with the phone wires 
And there's a couple of them there because 20 years ago or whatever, I had a different phone number in the house for the, for the fax machine, which everybody quit using. So it was just sitting there looking nice on my desk and I finally got rid of it. So he checks one wire and it's not good. It's getting the same. And he checks another wire in there and he does something. He cuts one off, a green one off and ties another one into something. And suddenly the line that was not working is working. Bear in mind, there's no way that this could have been done unless somebody specifically did this to go in here and change the wiring some kind of way. So I asked him, I said, how did this problem happen? He said, I, I don't know. I said, how did you fix it? He said, I, I don't know. He said, I just fucking, he put his little gimmick up there and detected wires with signal versus wires with and clipped a couple of them together, and a fucking phone works again. It's, it hasn't been changed in 20 years. Nobody's been in that little box to change those phone lines. And it's been the same phone number and the same line going to this house since 1956. But he comes in, and in 15 minutes, clip, clip, twist up, okay, I don't know how I did it. I don't know what was wrong, but it works. I said, so fucking leave. Do you remember the question I asked you? Because I didn't what even- What was it? I didn't even expect the answer you gave me, and it was perfect. I said, if you asked your neighbors, if they're having a similar problem, you said no one has a phone. Well, yeah. It's all these weirdos. All they've got, the guy next to me, he's older than I am. All he's got is a cell phone. The woman on the other side of me, she's- She's been there for quite some time, but I think she has one of those phones plugged into her computer or something because she always has trouble with it. And every time she calls me from her cell phone, well, my home phone's not working. So I, but, and you know, who am I going to call? Who am I going to call? Anyway, so if you want to call me, folks, well, now I'm way behind on all this shit anyway. I'm always, so if I haven't called you in the last week, I couldn't. For once, I have a legitimate excuse besides, I just, if I only had time. But this is your program. There's been 299 of them. That's is right. Is it going to end here or are well, we going to proceed? Technically more, because remember, way, way, way back, there were miniature episodes behind a paywall. So technically there are more than 300 episodes, but 300 free yes, episodes. But you, you can't get those unless you go to the Patreon and subscribe to our official Patreon. Patreon. Is it, is it French? It does sound better that way, doesn't it? Patreon. If you patronize our Patreon then you can hear all those lost episodes from years ago. That's right. Go to patreon.com slash cornet and check those out today. But a lot of things happening in the world of wrestling this week, Jim. Let's start talking about them. And we have a lot to catch up on. And we have another experience to record just a few days. <laughs> so there's a lot going on. Let's start with the really, really sad news uh, here as we start the show. Matt Hardy is still wrestling. Yep. Yeah. Unfortunately, we hate to have to bring that to you, folks. <laughs> what the f and he's better at that than he is at twitter let, let me just explain so i have trended on twitter again non-stop for like the past two days while i was 
taking Stacy to her back doctor appointment and uh, seeing whether she needed another MRI. And I was out in the yard trying to get some work done in between these rainstorms, and I'm vigorously rubbing Harley's belly, as well as trying to run our various business enterprises. And they, the, I don't know whether it's the Hardy faithful and the AEW faithful and just the people with no lives have continued to make me and you, Brian, both of us trend. At one point, we were both trending and you were trending more than I was trending, you trendy McTrenderson. At one point, apparently, I've been sent all these screen caps. I was the number one trending item in sports. At one point, it was me and <laughs> Pete Alonso from the Mets, so that made me happy. At another point, it was me and Eddie Murphy from Long Island, so that made me happy. Two Long Island guys, Nassau County. They kept us alive while we, uh, you know, basically went about our business. And we want to thank everyone for the extra added exposure of, of not only us as prominent people, but yourselves as complete morons. You know what kind of upset me? It was all happening. And as it was happening, we started getting these comments. I can't wait to hear about this. And I'm like, fuck, we still have an episode to drop before we could even record the episode <laughs> to talk about this. Well, and, and for the people who have been living under the, under the proverbial rock or who are lucky enough not to be on Twitter at all, all this emanated from Matt Hardy. Apparently, I guess it was late at night. Does Matt drunk tweet? Everything was spelled approximately correctly. There was some questionable, you know, grammar, but that would be normal. But he has to, uh, late at night on a Saturday or Sunday night or whatever it was on a weekend, get on Twitter. And he's, uh, remember folks, a grown man, nearly 50 years old, telling people that they should give his other grown adult friends, grown adult males, supposed professional athletes, their flowers. They don't praise Kenny. And Maddie and Nikki enough. They should give them their flowers. Now, this is a quote, and we'll don't worry, we're gonna quote everything, folks. If you want to hear this exchange, we're gonna be reading it. But he wanted to give the their friends, his friends, their flowers now, and it's only because of haters and the toxic cornet cultists that everybody in the world doesn't love and get all furry and fuzzy over everything that my friends who also employ me... Bingo. ...and pay me... Bingo. ...do. And it's just that there, it can't be legitimately because anybody in the world would ever just say, no, these guys are the shits. I don't like their wrestling. I think they're silly phony fucking childish cretins. No, it's because you and I, Brian, and basically you and I, because uh, I don't think the cult of Cornette being toxic, poisonous, I, I know what he's saying. He's saying there that we're just toxic and poisonous and we have toxic, poisonous listeners. And that's the only reason that anybody in the world could possibly dislike my friends. So give them flowers. Yeah, see, that's the thing. It's one thing coming after you or even, you know, an idiot like me. It's one thing coming after from a 14-year-old girl. Give my friends some flowers. 
But he's going after the listeners because it's their fault that they don't think the way he does, that they're not soft in the head. Now, he says the listeners are toxic. I'll take him at his word. Whether it's chemical or behavioral toxicity, he seems to be quite the expert in toxic. But that's the thing. It wasn't even about me and you. He well, came no, after but, the but listeners. See, that's the thing. That's the thing. He's he doesn't want to tag us, as the kids say. He doesn't want to mention us. He just wants to knock our fans and our listeners. He didn't. No, he to, but, but he doesn't even want to do that because he is a fucking listener. Let's be very honest about it. He's a well, member of, of the cult of Cornette. He wants to get the points for knocking the listeners. Yes. He's using our listeners as a tool. Treating them to like shit. Up to, to suck up to the EVPs. That's right. That's right. And he thought that if he didn't put our names in there, that he just said the toxic, but of course, immediately, anybody who says, what the fuck are you doing, Matt Hardy, informs us and spreads the word around about how they're being called toxic and poisonous and et cetera. And so I merely responded to him and went to fucking bed. And then he apparently, because you stay up later than I do, Brian, because you're a not only busier with all of the technical empire that you've got up there, but you're a younger person with children. So you're yeah. you're up past 8.30, quarter to nine. I was working on my quarterly taxes. <laughs> well, there you <laughs> know go. what I was you know. doing. <laughs> and so he continues to, now he's just all fired up. And this goes into the wee hours with him now arguing with you, still claiming that he's somehow in the right for telling our fans that they're poisonous. And then the whole floodgates open up of people who can spell all the words right and who use some punctuation and who have a grasp on the comment that they're trying to make and express themselves in sometimes sarcastic, sometimes witty, sometimes deep manners. And then you have the others that I don't know what the fuck they're doing or what they're on, but they're clearly on the other side of that. And they've all just lost their minds over it. And it wasn't that big. I mean, the crowd on our side seemed to be quite significantly larger than the people defending Matt Hardy. But but no, but see, the thing is the accounts, the accounts are about the same because if you look at, if you look at the people going, there's something wrong with Matt Hardy and what the fuck is he doing? Well, they're normal people with normal profiles or a significant number of followers or following people or whatever. And everybody else that wants to say, well, one of the or two of the tweets will read, but everybody wants that cornet last thing. They've got zero followers. They follow seven people, or there's a picture of some generic person that they pulled off of fucking Getty images, or whatever the case may be. So I think that the account numbers, it's pretty 50-50, but the actual people behind them, I think it's 95 to 5. You know, and the other thing is he used the audience. He was using the audience and trying to put down the audience. But the truth of the matter is, Matt Hardy is upset that even you can't pretend that his shit is good anymore. That's the problem. The problem is that we come on here and honestly talk about what we think of what we watch. And it has been impossible to see Matt Hardy. Let's just go back to the first moment he was in AEW, because that's like the last four years or so. It's been impossible to see that. 
and think any of it's good. Either the performances in the ring, either the craptastic performances on the mic, the concussions. Well, and let's be fair, the way he's been booked also, which may or may not be his fault, or he may have not have, may or may not have contributed to, because that's up in the air. Tony's also probably had a big hand in that, but how many times have you have they damaged his brain? And still, and couldn't figure out how to put the Hardy Boys back together. And this is the thing we've never said: the Hardy Boys aren't a draw. We said they aren't a draw now because of the way they've been put back together. I booked Matt and Jeff Hardy and Smoky Man Wrestling when they were teenagers. I booked them on goddamn WWF TV tapings to do jobs when they were teenagers. I used them in OVW. I booked Matt to come back to Ring of Honor in two thousand. 12, I believe. There's been value in them. But it's ridiculous at this point. Not only the the teleportation, the changing clothes and the ice machine, the fact that they're still trying to be the Hardy Boys when they're each almost 15 years older than the Rock and Roll Express were when they were in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And people say, I used the Rock and Roll when they were over the hill. The fuck? to the bad booking, to the fact that they literally, factually, demonstrably gave him brain damage and allowed the thing to go on in in that whatever kind of arena match they were having, whatever they called it, when he got speared off the fucking forklift and could walk for three minutes and they let that go on. And then, wasn't it then the next week or was it the week before that, the Sammy Guevara hocked a chair in his face and busted him from asshole to appetite. Oh, I forgot about that one, actually. Yes. So uh, the point is, this is the company he's taken up for. And we've the only thing we've said is that goddamn A, Matt should be ashamed of himself for the past few years for changing clothes and ice machines and teleportation and trying to do all this shit that he can't fucking do instead of trying to be a, a a force for good and logic as a veteran saying, don't do the, this stupid shit. You're going to kill yourself. And then when his brother comes in after all those chances and they botch re reuniting them so that they don't draw any money and they've put them in a meaningless position. I also think his work sucks. And again, well, it does now. We're talking about AEW, but remember before that, all of a sudden, this broken, woken, bullshit fucking stuff shot at his house. That was one of the turning points. All of a sudden, Impact, yeah. which had just completely given up, and that has continued to this day, apparently, started letting him do that. They turned it over to this adult swim kind of stuff. There is an audience for that. There is a relatively small audience, but an audience that likes that. But it wasn't good to a lot of other people, and he's worse today than he was then. So the point is, Matt had a meltdown on Twitter until late in the night, and then it became, a th and which you primarily carried the, uh, the banner for our side on, because I was asleep. And then a bunch of people picked up on it. We all trended for a couple of days. Would you, and, and coming, going back again, going back again to the original, because I didn't even see anything until I saw the tweet that said, oh, the cult of Cornette is toxic. But it was, uh, 
the origination of that was him trying to say that some match was great when other people were saying, no, it wasn't great. And he's, you know, we need to give the kids their flowers. So can you bring the people up in chronological order on this chain of events? Yes. Matt Hardy, best known for standing on the apron, wrote this on July 7th. Dark Order versus the Elite was a fantastic match. It's nice to see Dark Order earn such a well-deserved spotlight. Hashtag AEW Rampage. The Young Bucks and Adam Page are extraordinary talents that will unfortunately get their flowers way later than they should. You know, Big Mama's used to be right on the spot with delivering those flowers. Big Mama's Flower Shop in Charlotte. But now I guess she's got so much business, it takes a while to get the flowers out there. And let me just say before we get into all the back and forth, because I think he's such a goof, but I also do feel bad and sympathize for his situation. And like a tweet like this spells it out. Like these are likely his last years of earning income. If we really just want to put it out there. And he's trying to hold on. And by doing so, he's trying to latch onto these fucking guys. And that's why you get out of nowhere tweets begging people to accept the people that he's latched onto. So he tweeted that out. Then someone named- and 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 by the way, and I don't. There's nothing wrong. With, I mean, it was a patronizing tweet, but he works for the company. He's praising the talents. There's nothing wrong with what he just said. And obviously, since nothing was mentioned about us, I would not have had anything to say about it. So someone named Ryan quote tweeted him saying, "Matt's right, though. I know it's cool to hate on the Bucks and Hangman if you're a Punk Collision fan, but not for me." Give those guys their flowers. More flowers. You know, and by the way, I would love to give those guys, I'd buy them the whole flower shop. Big banners across them. Rest in peace. I'd love that. Should the Bucks come out to you don't bring me flowers? <laughs> you don't? Do you know? <laughs> Brian, last year in the music business, Neil Diamond and Barbara Streisand, right? 1978 <laughs> or 9? believe so am i correct i no think i'm not hit? not one of the records i buy but yes do you know how that duet originated no tell me a dj here in louisville both barbara streisand and neil diamond had recorded that song and he did what do the kids call it the mashup the mix-up he put them together in the studio and and they got so many requests, people went ape shit over the thing that it actually got back to the record company and they did it. How about that? Wow, I had no idea about the history of that song. Go look it up sometime in your little black book. But anyway. It'll be in my book. It certainly won't be in my record collection. But Matt Hardy quote tweeted Ryan saying, between this and the toxic cornet cult, uh-huh. these guys don't get the adoration that they truly deserve. The diehard elite fans are phenomenal and get why they're special. But there's a huge chunk of fans that failed to give them the credit they deserve. Give these guys their flowers! <laughs> the flowers! Is he high? What the fuck is he talking about? I don't about? know. Is he burning the flowers? Um, again. Not the vape. Give them the flower! Hint, yeah. hint. If it, you can fucking verbally fillet these guys all you want if you don't 
knock our listeners and say the cult of Cornette is so toxic because we don't think that these guys are worth a shit. I'm sorry. It's a terrible thing that everybody in the world doesn't like your fucking friends that pay you. But there's no reason to call all of our listeners toxic because they don't like play wrestling. So that's when I was alerted to this, when I checked it on Twitter at whatever point that was. And I merely responded to Matt in a fairly respectful manner for me. Oh, would you like me to read that one too? I would, I would like, cause you got them in front of you. Okay. I don't know how to pull all this shit up. Jeez, Matt, I can understand selling your soul for rock and roll, but selling it for Adderall? Even if you have to abandon your principles and verbally fillet these childish cretins for your check, leave my fans alone. It's mm -hmm. not their fault Tony's not paying them enough to lie. And that was my comment, and I've left it there. It's, don't, don't bring our people into this fucking thing. And that's where I left it. And then apparently, Matt could not go to bed he couldn't go to sleep he couldn't leave it alone he knew what was waiting in the bedroom oh, oh now come on now that's what he said minute, that's minute. what he said at the end well i know you're dramatic foreshadowing but at the same time some people said is it was it rebby that had his phone because you couldn't believe it. This, he's going to go on and argue this all fucking night, right? But people could believe she would because she does sometimes. No, we did hear that from a lot of people. And to be honest, I'm not too familiar with her prose. So I could figure out if the writing style is hers or not. But it doesn't matter. Shut up. Turn off your phone. Don't try to go back and forth. You're not going to win. So after you were off the computer, which I knew, Matt Hardy responded, Geez, Jim, I haven't sold my soul. I'm sticking to my principles and telling truths. I feel morally obligated to do right by my friends, although that's probably foreign to you. <sighs> I earn a check because I'm great at what I do and still employable. Keep on seeding dissension amongst fans with your shtick. It's too sweet. <sighs> See, and again, is... <laughs> Is still employable not a synonym for needs work? And also, is if I am 82 years old and I'm sitting under my dogwood tree petting Harley the Fourth, are people going to go, boy, it's a shame nobody will give him a job? What the fuck? Again, Matt tries to do the shock jock thing. Because that's verbiage from Maddie and Nikki, his, his, his doppelgangers. Can I say something about that? Yes. I grew up in New York. I grew up with Howard Stern, my father liked Imus, Opie and Anthony when they hit, sports talk radio, all this shit. Whether it's Matt Hardy and where's he from, North Carolina, or the yeah. Bucks in California, shut the fuck up about shock jocks. You guys <laughs> don't know anything about shock jocks, you idiots. Well, but in this case, it's another, it's a, a synonym, a kayfabe term for truth teller. Yeah, all those people are telling the truth about my friends. They all want to be shocking. No, we just want to get your fucking friends off our television. But you see, this is part of the bigger problem, which is that 
And I posted something about this on the Cult of Cornet Facebook group. If you talk to people in wrestling, and if you talk to wrestling media personalities or whatever the fuck everyone is, you get real stuff. You get real talk. You get gossip. You get real opinions, real thoughts. A lot of these people, when they get on the air, those opinions and thoughts are gone. They're not going to say what they really think, and you understand why. They don't want to upset people, or maybe they want to edge their way into a job one day for one of the companies. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of that out there. We don't do that because we're happy doing this. I've already done that. You don't want to do it. That's it. This is what we're doing. And the idea <laughs> that unless you're doing a wrestling version of the Drew Barrymore show, <laughs> where you hold the guest's hands and you kiss them and you tell them how much you love them, that you're negative or this and that. No, we're honest. We're honest. I love late night TV. I love David Letterman. I thought Craig Ferguson was the last great late night talk show host. Conan, Tapes of Cavett, and Carson. I love all this stuff. I can say Jimmy Fallon sucks. And I'm allowed to say I am happy James Corden returned to England because he sucked too. You can appreciate good stuff and point your finger and say it about the bad stuff. And again, a lot of the things that people get upset about that we talk about, everyone in the fucking business talks about. Of course. They're just not prepared to go on the record saying it. I'm not looking to be friends with wrestlers. I don't give a fuck. So anyway, I responded to Matt Hardy because I knew you weren't on the computer. And again, he's attacking the listeners and he's saying that we're seeding dissension. So I wrote, he thinks he's great at what he does because he said he's still great at what he does. We've all been watching. His promos suck. His in-ring work is shit. And the only thing anyone has ever been interested in him doing is tagging in his brother. Jim telling the truth is, quote, seating dissension? How many concussions is too many? And Matt Hardy responded to me, I'm great at what I do, Brian Least. I'm great at pro wrestling. I'm great at giving back and helping young talent. You're just some asshole with an opinion. <laughs> And that opinion doesn't mean shit in reality, but most importantly, just an asshole. By the way, you seem to care a lot about this asshole's opinion, buddy boy. So I responded, because again, he's arguing over how great but he I is. But I know now you've got him hopping up and down like one of the Rock and Roll Express fans in 1986. And again, now the defense is he's arguing his greatness. He's arguing his greatness with the great Brian Last. And the reason why he's so great, that proves that our fans are poisonous. So I wrote, you've been a great enabler, but you know your crap has sucked for years. And that's Mr. Asshole to you. Yeah. Toxic. I think we should start a company called Toxic. That's good. Toxic wrestling. No, just toxic. We could, be, we could poison everything. Well, no, let's not say that. That's not funny. We don't want to poison things. Well, no, we're, we're, we're toxic. That's what non-toxic means a kid can stick it in his mouth, right? Well, toxic, we're going to market this well, shit is your kids can't stick it in their mouths. Well, can we market the toxicity that it's self-contained? It won't be spread? No, what's the good of toxicity if you can't spread it? People may not want it. Well, they're going to get it. Well, let's go back to toxic Matt Hardy here. Another shitty joke must be your forte, least. My shit's good. Your shit is shit, you toxic bitch-ass asshole. <laughs> That's a first. I have not seen that combination of uh, words You're there. a toxic bitch-ass asshole. Yeah, toxic. 
Oh God damn it. Are that are the Hardys up up there in the Hall of Fame yet? If, if if as soon as they get put in one day, then you can say that a Hall of Famer has called you a toxic bitch ass asshole. Yeah, which Hall of Fame is that? The Sackler Family Hall of Fame. But let me go back to uh, the tweets here. I said, "Are you trying to convince yourself? Your work is shit. Stay home. No one will care. You seem much more toxic than I am, with a track record to back it up." I'm better at what I do than you are at whatever it is you are still trying to do. And it's signed, Mr. Asshole, to you. You know, and you got him with a point there because you are better at what you are currently doing than he is at what he is currently doing. That wasn't a joke or anything. I'm very, very serious. Because this is the number one wrestling podcast in the genre of wrestling podcasts. And... He is a wrestler, and he is not the number one wrestler in the genre of wrestlers. So that's pretty cut and dry. That's right. And more people care about what we're talking about here on the show. More people want to listen to it than will tune in to see Matt Hardy. And that's a fact, too. Actually, most of the time, by the time we get finished with all the various feeds, more people tune in to hear what we have to say than see the show that he's on. Well, let's go Go back to the Hardy compound. Don't have to convince myself. My live reactions, paycheck and appearance fees solidify I'm good. I don't know shit about you, nor care to. So keep doing what you're good at, you goofy bitch-ass asshole. (laughs) Now, is that two times you were a bitch-ass asshole? Well, this time goofy, too. But at least not toxic. I'll do the same, and you can continue to whine and cry about it like a baby. So I responded, how dare you? You're way goofier than me. You understand that you are the one whining and crying, right? Can you still comprehend that much? Once again, you seem quite toxic, on caps. Is everything okay? He wrote... He's still... What time is this? Well, you know, now that I look at it, these screen caps may be from a different time zone. It says 5.11 a.m. It couldn't have been 5.11 a.m. You weren't still up there. I don't think so. I don't think so. I... Work late into the night, but at a certain point, I'm not doing anything that late. But let me go. This is now the longest tweet he sent out. Me stating that you two constantly feel like toxic culture isn't whining. It's just hard truths. You constantly moaning and bitching about me wrestling is whining and crying. Can you discern that? Or are you a moon calf? I'm great, by the way. Just at a huge con in Tennessee. Great, by the way. Wait a minute. I'm great, by the way. By the way, he said he doesn't care about my opinion. He says he doesn't listen. You constantly moaning and bitching about me wrestling. Yeah, you listen, you fucking dope. And we know it. Dope. But anyway, I'm great, by the way. Just did a huge con in Tennessee. Have four beautiful kids. Financially set for life. Still get to live my dream. Have major respect within my industry. If I say so myself. Am considered a living legend. <laughs> Been a huge contributor to pro wrestling, and no rando from the internet's opinion is going to change any of this. And by the way, he pays for the deal where you can just tweet as long as you want to tweet, right? I either he pays for it or he was grandfathered in. We don't know for sure. But okay, but one way or another, because that's how this is so voluminous here. Especially not an egotistical asshole <laughs> like Brian Least. Congrats on the podcast. It'll be a great way to be remembered in history. Enough of this silly-ass cyber convo. It's time to go (laughs) crawl on top of my hot-ass wife. 
Oh, he actually, and this is a quote, right? No, he literally wrote everything I just said. <sighs> yeah, and by the way, I will be very happy within wrestling to be remembered for the rest of history as being behind this show. Absolutely, 100%. We're the biggest thing ever. Don't ever forget that. And it's only getting bigger. But anyway. And it's, and it's even got a vein on it now. But anyway, he left it with, he's going to go crawl on top of his wife. Now, I didn't see this, I don't think, until the next morning. But I wrote back, are you crying again? We call the bad shit bad. We call the good shit good. You wouldn't be whining if you had produced anything in the last several years that we could have said anything good about. However, as you know, your work is shit. Have you thought about talking to someone? And at this point, many of the listeners started sending him links to better help. <sighs> and, and so, obviously, when I got back on Twitter, I th- did I answer him one more time? Did I say one more you, thing you to did, him? You did, because you didn't know any of this had happened. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Because, so, yeah, what, the next day, I'm like, what in the flying fuck is going on here? So the next morning, you retweeted one of Matt's claims of how spectacular his life is because he did a convention in Tennessee. It was Fanboy Expo, by the way. Remember a few years ago, I told the story about Dave? Dave, I remember couldn't that. Find the, couldn't help me find the fucking hotel I was supposed to be at and his cohort, Tony Hunter, that moron. Go ahead. But you tweeted out, I'd like to thank great Brian Lass for staying up into the night toying with this concussed ex-great while he was protesting too much about how successful he is. I go to sleep too early on Saturday nights to have time to play with kids. Golly, Matt, don't you have signings to do? And he responded to you. And, and, and by the way, and I was incorrect. It was Sunday night. It was the night before I wrote Saturday because hey, it's all it's, every day's a weekend to me. Last night was Sunday, Jimmy. <laughs> Maybe you're the concussed one. You're definitely an ex-great. I used to have massive respect for you, but that's been long gone. That's the case with many people now, and it's sad. This is my final tweet to you. <laughs> you, Thank you. You and Least keep doing your shock jock routines and fanning those toxic flames of hate and negativity for your zombies to slurp up. Said now they're zombies as well as poisonous, and they're slurpers. Make those bucks however you can, though, right? I guess that's your philosophy, isn't it, Matt? Enjoy your life, Jim. I'll certainly enjoy mine. And hopefully, I I was about to say, hopefully he will live long enough to enjoy it if they don't keep damaging his brain over there in that company he's taken up for. So I responded, I know it must upset you, but it's 2023, and the, quote, shock jocks matter more than you do. Do what you do best, and just tag in Jeff. You have certainly proven that you don't have the brain power for Twitter, let alone good promos, good angles, good matches, or walking straight. Oh. And I don't think he responded after that. No, he didn't. And, and it was... A lot of people were saying a lot of bad things about poor Matt because of that display that he had to go through. And I'm sorry for that. But... As well, I looked at my Twitter, and remember I said a bunch of these are just, they're obviously fake accounts because they have no profile, generic picture, you know, single digit in followers or whatever the case. 
but there was actually some real people. And I felt just like I was back in 1986 messing with the Rock and Roll Express. Only these were tweets instead of crayon postcards or whatever. But the, you know, Brian, that's the thing is our fans, I guess they are toxic. We've heard they're poisonous. They're zombies. They eat flesh and slurp hatred. And, you know, they can only aspire and hope and dream to be as refined and classy and dignified and tolerant and verbose and eloquent as the Hardy fans and the Hardy supporters out there that are obviously non-toxic, that obviously children can put these people in their mouths because they're not poisonous. And I got a bunch of them, but I retweeted a couple of specific ones because it was kind of indicative. But this person was even a little bit more, I don't know, eloquent than most of the Hardy supporters who, as I mentioned, are non-toxic and very refined and eloquent and tolerant. Would you read a couple of those missives, please? Yeah, I have a couple here. Jace, you're going to have to bleep a few things here, but I'm going to read it as it oh, was Oh, well, no, since we're not... Since we're not using this language, we're reporting language that was used to us. Is that still? It could still cause a problem for certain words, yes. So so then read it slowly where the people will have time to mentally fill in the blanks on the beeps. Don't make the beeps too loud, Jason, really, so it doesn't shock them. So you'll get the full effect of what this, again exceptionally tolerant and loving and caring and benevolent individual was saying about the toxic fans that we have and myself. Yeah, we received a lot. We received a lot from the toxic Hardy fans, the toxic elite fans, a lot more toxic than anything I've ever seen from the cult of Cornette, but it's hard for yeah, those people to As a accept. matter of fact, this, this, could be, this could be poisonous to your ears, folks. So yes. anyway. Well, this was tweeted out from Atasha Blevins at HardyFan24. And surprise, surprise, her image is her with Matt Hardy. I'd like for you two f to go suck some more dick. Fuck both of you pieces of shit. Your moms should have swallowed your bitch asses. At least Matt Hardy's birth certificate wasn't an apology from the condom factory. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even read this before. I didn't see that. Fuck you two yeast infected cum bubbles. You're nobodies. <laughs> And by your nobody, Y-O-U-R. Yeah. Your yeah, nobodies. Yeah. Your nobodies till somebody's loves you. And here's another one from her. I bet that's why your last name is Cornette. Your mom used to suck cock that probably had corn on it after pulling it out of someone's ass. <laughs> Sucked so many and swallowed so much, she named her dump after it. When you open your mouth, dicks fall out. <laughs> Fuck you and your boyfriend, bitch. <laughs> but at least I'm not a bitch-ass asshole. Fuck you and your boyfriend had an exclamation point. Bitch has nothing. It's just bitch on its just own. Bit. Just no bitch and it trailed off. Yeah. <laughs> and now there's an update on that. So many people, the, believe it or not, this, this woman, and I use the, it, the air quotes, this woman not only didn't delete her whole account, or I don't even think those tweets, but when people deluged her about what is mentally wrong with you and talking about what she had said, 
her final response, I think, uh, uh, the next day or whatever, well, I was just mad. I shouldn't have said those things, but I was mad. And then she sent out a tweet apologizing to me and you, Brian. Have you seen that one? I actually had not seen that, no. Yeah, I saw that. Well, I guess I shouldn't have said all that stuff, but I was mad, but I shouldn't speak that way. Apology accepted. Uh, I don't know. Have you seen the picture of her? You know, let's just say a few things here. One, it's a popular thing to blame everything on Jim Cornette and now blame everything on his audience because his audience are just mindless people. They're zombies who can't think for themselves. And there's so many of them. You know, goddamn, if The Walking Dead had had a cast like this, they could have fucking taken over the whole goddamn world. Hey, listen, every single week, there are a lot more fans of these shows. Every single week, there are less people that care about Matt Hardy. There aren't any more new fans for Matt Hardy. This is it. This is the end. And he wants to blame us. He wants to blame us for giving honest thoughts about his work. No, you know, it wasn't even his work. At first, it was his friend's work that didn't get their flowers. No, but this... Based on what he said, this then goes the back. Truth, then the true thoughts came out. Right. This goes back to the fact that his work has been shit for a very long time. And Matt Hardy is upset that we're just not going to do the Drew Barrymore type of wrestling programming that everyone else wants to do. And if you like that kind of stuff, go there. This is a show. These shows are built on honesty. We're honest with the listeners. I don't care what the wrestlers think or the promotions think. I care what the listeners think. And I'm not going to start hey, hiding know, I, my true wish, feelings wish, about these guys because it'll upset people. I don't care. I'm not looking to be friends with them. I'd rather be able to give an honest assessment to the audience. I wish I could say the same thing about... Uh, about <sighs> I would love to be still be friends with some of these people but not at the cost of having to humor them when they have gone off the deep end, whether they're having matches with the Invisible Man or praising the Buckaroos or doing whatever the fuck it is they're doing with the teleportation and the space aliens or whatever the fuck. They have disappointed me. Therefore, I have to give my opinion. Because this is what I do. And very well, by the way. No, and everyone, that's the thing. There's a soft fan base. And it's such a small fan base. We do need to point out, it's not even like, it's not even, you know, like the Observer audience. It's a small portion of the Observer audience. Because we know, because a lot of them are listening to this. But there's a small group of them that are on the Observer message. But once again, they pay Brian Alvarez and Dave Meltzer so that they can go on a message board and hide and talk shit and say all sorts of slanderous things. They know they won't be sued. Dave and Brian will be sued. But we'll get to that at another point. Everyone wants to attack Jim Cornette and his fans. At some point in history, you guys want to talk about history? You guys are going to have to turn around and realize that you all miss this story. How big these shows are. And how big this audience is. And how many people agree with what Jim says don't follow what he says. You just hit it. The reason why is because all of these people are pissed the fuck off that these jack-offs have ruined the wrestling business. And at least they can get a kick, the same kind of entertainment they used to get out of good wrestling, by hearing us take the piss out of the bad wrestling. And it's easy to do because we don't have to make anything up. We can just relate what we see. Yeah. So that th therein lies the problem is if you don't want us to not give you your flowers, then don't go out there and take a shit in the middle of the ring.
And don't attack the listeners. You got a problem with what we say? Yes. Come to us. Don't attack. Don't out of nowhere attack the listeners because you're looking for points. You're running out you know of points. I hate those fucking Madonna fans because I don't like her music. What the fuck? Just because or vice versa. I hate those people that don't like my favorite singer because they don't like my favorite singer. Well, maybe because your favorite singer sucks. The soft fan with weak takes, and some of them are just fans and some of them are in wrestling media, have a problem with anyone who doesn't toe that line and then they act in the toxic manner that they accuse everyone else of acting in. How dare you say things? How dare you make fun of everyone? What? What? We can't make fun of things now? We can't make fun of things. Seriously, all the soft, weak-minded fans, all the people with the weak takes, all the people with a closet full of Young Bucks t-shirts, go fuck yourself. They make fun of the wrestling business, so we make fun of them. It's tit for tat. Only we got bigger tits than they've got tats. <laughs> See? We have, the, best, we have it, the biggest that, hits in wrestling podcasts. From yeah, <laughs> boy, and boy, they, they're spectacular. And we like to make fun of stupid people doing stupid shit. And we're going to continue to do that for the other people who like. And let me ask you this. If Brian, you're a big baseball fan, yeah. right? So isn't this human nature if some player made the team on the Mets this year and every time he got an at-bat, and swung at the ball, he lost his grip on the bat, and it flew and beamed the fucking pitcher in the goddamn head every single time. After about five or six of those, wouldn't people start making fun of him? It would happen after the first one, and after the second one, people would think something's going on. After the third one, it would be the biggest scandal in sports. <laughs> but it would be hard to do that on purpose, wouldn't it? You'd have to kind of, it would have to be an accident. You couldn't nail the guy, but nevertheless... Well a lot of fans would be making some fucking fun out of him, right? What about old Titus O'Neil that entered the Royal Rumble head first under the ring? He's never lived that down, but guess what? That's human nature. So when you do stupid, silly, bad things, funny-looking things, whatever, people make fun of you. Get the fuck over it. Oh, my God, you made fun of Kenny. Well, guess what? So do his coworkers, and so do his friends, and so do the people yes. that know him. And so does everybody that sees that ridiculous cult Japanese bullshit of him wrestling sex toys and sticking his finger up other oiled men's naked assholes in the middle of a wrestling ring. We just say it. Everyone else will say it on the phone. Everyone else will say it in text messages. Some people will hide on message boards and say it. We say it on the air. We're honest with the audience. Wrestling industry be damned. <laughs> Yeah, don't worry, it has been. <laughs> I think the wrestling industry about 30 years ago kicked the fuck out of Maria Ospinskaya and got cursed. What? Oh, kicked her right in the fucking face. And she said, ooh, even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night will have to watch bad wrestling when the WWE takes over and Tony Khan convinces his father to put in a bunch of money to fucking fund his goddamn live action figure playset. It didn't rhyme as good as the original one did, but... And the other... One last thing I want to point out, just a little bit of the hypocrisy. So many of the people who have a problem with you because of your rejection of, you know, the Bucks... Them. The Bucks, Kenny, other people, whether it's them or people that someone is a fan of, these are the same people that never had a problem with you until your view 
diverge from theirs. Yes. And now they have a problem with you. If you came out a few years back and you were like, you know what? The Young Bucks are amazing. Kenny's amazing. All of those fans would love you. And all the fans that disagree with you wouldn't. They would still be there. They exist. But that's the point. There is a hypocrisy because Matt Hardy's mad at Jim Cornette because Jim Cornette's not going to say, Matt Hardy had a great match. By the way, he's not going to say that because he doesn't watch fucking Rampage or the pre-show. <laughs> but he's not going to say not, Do you know what I told Matt Hardy? That I think let's um, 2016, I think. It may have been 16 probably because I was busy in 17. I don't think I was dead. But I was in Spartanburg. One of the legends, you know, shows that the Hardys were on. And I think that's one uh, that uh, uh, Dr. Tom was on. Whatever the case. Anyway. Matt and Jeff were there. I think Jeff even came unannounced or whatever, but they did a thing where we were waiting to go on with those rock and roll express match. And Jeff had done some kind of thing where he became the will o' the wisp or whatever, his alter ego and weather, the weather, yeah, whatever. And they were saying, and somehow he was going to be a heel and fuck the other guy, but then come back. And I told Matt in the bathroom or the locker room, I said, Matt, were you doing some heel stuff? Well, Jeff wanted to do something, whatever. I told him, I said, look, you've got between the two of y'all, you've got the business head, which I thought he did at that time. And I said, with y'all's names, this is the Carolinas, just North and South Carolina, maybe a little bit of Virginia, but up there, you might get out of your, you know, your comfort zone with the, the, uh, the region. Everybody knows you here in the States of North and South Carolina. You need to start now, start running your own shows. You can, you can get publicity all over the place. Establish that you run in various places in the Carolinas, six big independent shows a year where all of your friends will come and work for, they won't rape you on the rates. I'm not saying do it, have them do it for free, but they'll give you good deals. Your local and regional celebrities, you can get into the newspapers, the television stations, get publicity, radio, start working on that now. And if you establish something like that, if Impact wants to come in the Carolinas, you can promote their big live event because you've got the connections. You can make money as a promoter of your own shows or helping to promote other events for other companies that want to work with you. And you can establish relationships with some of the medium-sized buildings in the Carolinas to where if they're going to have wrestling, they will call you, say, this other group wants to fucking... These are the things that people don't understand about being in a wrestling business and running regular locations. The building will call you. Hey, another wrestling promotion wants to run. You're going to give me a show next few months and I'll tell them no. Shit like that, right? And then he's got a part of the country sewed up where he doesn't have to travel far from home. He can promote fan fests, autograph sessions. And you can make six figures and not fucking be away from home, but maybe 10 nights a fucking year if you want. But instead, he's getting speared off fucking forklifts. So, I've given up. Yeah, well, that's that. And don't call our audience toxic, all right? Keep your brother off the road. Keep your wife off the internet. And don't worry about our audience. And it's Mr. Asshole and Mr. Toxic to you.
That's right. You're Mr. Toxic? I'm Mr. Toxic if you're Mr. Asshole. You want to trade? The, how about the system of Dr. Tar and Professor Feather? That's an overlooked <laughs> Alan Parsons Project classic. Boy, I guess so. You don't you don't remember I'd say it was on the Tales of Mystery and Imagination album. I don't know that one, no. Oh, it's fantastic. The whole side, actually. A dream within a dream, a cask of amontillado, the system of Dr. Tar and Professor Feather. It's amazing. Amazing music. Well, Jim, moving on from the hearty party drama, let's get to some other news and happenings in the world of wrestling. Let's go to some sad news. And a lot of people, of course, naturally got in touch with us and wanted to get your thoughts on this. News breaking this morning as we are recording, the passing of Mantar, Mike Halleck. Well, yeah, and obviously I saw this, you know, early. Well, you had told me first, and I got on Twitter and saw a bunch because people were, you know, in, including us in it because of the... <laughs> and I, I didn't dislike this guy at all. I'm not trying to say anything bad about him, but he literally was Mantar for like, what, was it six weeks? Did he last that long? I managed him, I think, at one taping twice or maybe spread over two tapings. It was kind of a rib on me. I think they, pr I don't know how he got booked and got there, to be honest. And I think when Vince saw the outfit and the bison head or whatever it was, I think he just kind of tuned out. Uh, but anyway, you know, I really only interacted with him those few times and he didn't last long in the WWF because the gimmick, it just didn't work. He had a career. Uh, I saw on PW Insider, you know, the retrospective they did, some clips. He wrestled as Bruiser Mastino. He was, uh, did tours of Germany, was in, I guess one of the clips I saw was, I think it was it either in Japan, England, somewhere. He was worked around the world, had had worked in Canada, was in Memphis at one point. Um, that just the the gimmick and just the preposterosity of it is what registered with people, and we've told the story a few times. So I hate to hear that he passed away, and we have no, you know, information on you know what happened. And he was only 55 years old. I knew he had to be younger than me. And I was like, geez. So, you know, we really don't know anything more than that, but we had to comment on it just because so many people have uh, have brought the thing up. Hey, you as a tape trader, you were watching stuff from everywhere but Antarctica. And Germany. How, <laughs> how was, well, did you see anything of his other work besides Mantar and the WWF? I never had seen him before he got to the WWF, and that was kind of what launched, like, who's this guy? Where is he from? Usually, like, when someone showed up there, you know, domestically, you kind of knew, if you were a smart fan or just someone who read the magazines even, you knew the name. Yeah. You kind of had seen them somewhere. But I didn't know who this guy was at all, and I don't think I ever saw footage of him until, like, the days of YouTube, before Mantar, and again, it lasted very, a very he, short he, period of time. He had a run in Memphis when Memphis was not doing well, I think, in the late, was it the late 80s or was it the early 90s at some point around there? But but yeah, you know, that, and that's the thing is in those days you could still, somebody could still show up on television with a different gimmick and a different look and you didn't know who the fuck they were. How long before you went out with them 
on TV? Did you actually meet him? Like 20 minutes. Like they, they no, that was why I thought, I thought it was a rib somehow because they literally said like 20 minutes before the fucking match went out. I think he was one of the first matches at the taping. Bruce told me you're managing Mantar. And I was like, oh yeah, right. Like they would just tell me to know you are go out with him. Oh shit. And he's a very nice guy. Um, I don't know whether it was nerves or what, but his timing, as we've mentioned, I don't want to speak ill of a man who's just passed, but his timing was an issue in that match, and it wasn't real good, and the gimmick didn't, he couldn't get in the ring with the fucking head on. And I'd seen Yukon Moose Cholak when I was 12, so I knew what was going to go on here. But he had to wear it, and then he had to carry it, and and it just it wasn't a good match or a good gimmick or whatever. And like I said, I, I somebody has said to me on Twitter, I've seen you with Mantor in two different matches. It may have been two matches that taping, I don't know, but it didn't it didn't go long. And they they may have sent me. Did he have a match with with Brett or somebody that they sent me out maybe to take a bump? I don't know. You said he had timing issues that a lot of guys who weren't used to WWE rings have timing issues or different issues because of the size of the ring, let alone the ropes. That may have been part of it because one of them I remember, but also he was trying to wrestle. He was trying to do, you know, mantar, like he was revving his feet up like a bull charging or whatever. He charges into the turnbuckle and the guy moves and he hits the buckle and he staggers back. And weebles and wobbles for like five seconds without turning around. <laughs> and, they, and I just, <laughs> oh, man, you know, stuff like that. Several of the reports have referred to him as a member of Camp Cornette. Do you consider him an official member of Camp Cornette? No. Um, I'm not even sure if that period of time was when we were still doing Camp Cornette that I was with Owen, Davey, and either Yoko or Vader uh, was the pretty much the Camp Cornette lineup at one point or another. I don't even know whether this was the same time period or not. I have a feeling, boy, I'll tell you what, uh, if if he had been welcomed in, into the group as a full-time member, I can't imagine the fun that Owen and Davey would have had with Mantar's gimmick, at least. Well, what is camp if not fun? But There uh, you have it. We send our sympathies to the fans and the friends and the family of Mantar, Mike Halleck. Jim, moving on here, another topic that has just come up. News that is broken. PW Insider reporting. Brian Pillman Jr., 29 years old, has left AEW, removed from the roster. Any thoughts? Yes, it's about time. And I wish they'd done it sooner. Because it's been obvious for, what, how long? that they weren't going to do anything with him. He was not going to be featured on the on any of the television programs. We don't know what they did on YouTube, but we've also heard that the YouTube matches were just, you know, just rapid-fire matches, just, you know, three minutes with green guys against green guys. Get them in and get them out. Let's have 18 matches. Let everybody play. He wasn't learning anything. Not only was he not learning anything, even if you, if he was the smartest guy in the world, if you never see him, it, it could be the best wrestler in the world. You wouldn't know it because you're not seeing him. But the point is, if he's not, they had a period of time. There was a window there, the dark side of the ring on his dad. There was 
I'm not conflating it with the Eddie Kingston piece, but there was another article or related articles about Brian Jr. at that period of time. He had sympathy. Remember, he had people were kind of behind him. Yeah. And that they didn't you saw him a few times on TV and he didn't do anything wasn't allowed to do anything remarkable or memorable, and then you didn't see him anymore, and that window closed. So I'm not saying I'm glad he got fired. I'm saying it's about time because if he still wants to be a wrestler, I know the guaranteed income because everybody that works for Tony Connie, even people you don't see for years at a time, they still get their check. That's great, but if he ever wants to be more than what he is now, he has to go out and go somewhere else. Either work independence where he can just try out new shit or work on his either his in-ring work or his presentation or his interviews, whatever he feels he needs. Maybe try out a new look, not changing himself entirely. He's Brian Pillman's son, but a new manner of dress or way of doing things. Will he get signed to one of the other companies that might use him more prominently so he can get some more experience being featured in angles? He's only 29, so that's why I say you know, he's making money, but he was sitting there aging away. So now he has the chance to go out and try to get better, find someplace else to go, something else to do, and see if he can get to the next level. And that's probably the best thing for him if he wants to be a, a wrestler long term. If he just was was taking the check, then that's a bad thing. That's probably pretty tough for a lot of people to hear. It's a good thing that you're no longer with that company paying you six figures. How should he see this? Well, that just, like just an that. opportunity. You know, that's the thing. I mean, I do you hear him wrestling a lot of independence? Do any of the mostly the AEW guys even wrestle independence anymore? Probably not. We don't hear of that name or a lot of those names on just every outlaw mud show. So he's not been wrestling that much and you can't, even if he was in a gym training every day, you can't get better without being in front of people. So again, over the last three years, he's probably had minimal expenses. He's been paid good money to do very little. Hopefully he saved some of it or most of it. Cause as a wrestler in your twenties, you should have done that. Everybody should. Then he can decide whether he wants to continue to be a wrestler and take a few years where he might not make much money, but he'll get more experience and make a name for himself or might now be the time to fucking cut bait. We shall find out. Jim, another thing I wanted to talk to you about was something we did not review when we reviewed SmackDown on the experience the other day because it was not on the actual show, but footage is out there and exclusive to WWE YouTube. L.A. Knight confronting Hit Row. <laughs> and this, this thing has gotten 1.2 million views as of the, this morning when I watched it. I don't know what it'll be up to by the time the people, the people hear this, the cult of Cornette, but it wasn't even a confrontation, apparently, with the, the trimming they did on the SmackDown show or for whatever reason, L.A. Knight was not on that show. And I, we all know the reasons why Skid Row wasn't on the show. So they did a deal for the live house 
and put the video on YouTube where Skid Row is in the ring and Flop Dollar is doing a promo where he's trying to hit the crowd with heel lines and they're laughing and the crowd is neither laughing nor booing. They're just sitting there rolling their fucking eyes like what? And the shit's falling flatter than four. You can hear a mouse pissing on cotton in the corner in this crowd. No, the best part though is as this is happening and they're quiet, the other members have microphones. So do you hear? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> There's no one else reacting. Except yeah. The and, and, the, and the girl, uh, what's her name? Bayfabe. Bayfabe. What? Bayfabe. Bayfabe. Well, she's going, that's right. And no, nobody else is saying a word there in this arena. Nobody's reacting. The, the lines are falling flat. And then suddenly LA Knight's music plays and the people go ballistic. And here he comes and there's no verbal confrontation or reason for him. He, they didn't even mention his name. He just slides in the ring and starts kicking the shit out of him. And as he's fight, boom, and the people are, yay. And then they stop him because it's two of them and the, the girl jumped out. It's two of them and one of him. So they stop him and he sells for him for a second. And now the people are booing everything that either member of Skid Row does because it's two LA night. And then as soon flop dollar is going to give him some kind of move while the other guys, you know, up on the ropes glorifying to the fans and LA night comes out of that and gives flop dollar the big cutter from behind or whatever neck breaker. The point again, flop dollar, it looks like some guy parking cars at the fucking local high school basketball game. One of the fathers just happened to wander into the fucking wrestling ring. And every time he tries to do anything <laughs> physical, it looks like his arms and legs aren't hinged in the direction that most people's are. And it just, it's odd. It's captivating, but odd. So boom, he puts him down and then the other guy jumps down and oh shit. And LA Knight hits him with some, throws him over the top rope out of the ring, I think. And it hit boom, boom. It just beat him up and shoved him out and then grabbed the mic. And of course the people are ballistic over him and they do the LA Knight. Yeah. And then he says, I'm going to make it short and sweet. Tell him whose game this is. And LA Knight again. And he fucking rolls out. He had them in the palm of his hand. When he got in the ring after he'd beaten up Skid Row, he grabs the microphone and he just looks around and he just waves it around in a circle slowly so the people will get the idea that they're on mic and whatever they say. And they start doing his thing. And he milks just perfectly and he has a presence. And, you know, so this whole thing was under three minutes, but it tore the house down. And yes, there is some element of it's, it's easy because everybody loves to see flop dollar try to take a bump, but it wouldn't have worked if 90% of the roster had come in and done that that way. It would just, they love LA night, especially because they barely get to see him. But what does this say? He comes out there, he gets this big pop gets this big number on YouTube. We have seen reports, WrestleNomics has reported. It's one of the biggest merch movers in the company now. We talked about this being the last Vince McMahon-run garden show, likely. The reaction someone gets in the garden 
I would have to think even old man Vince that may matter something to. You would think because again, the Vince that I knew almost 30 years ago, it wouldn't have taken him this long if that kind of swell was coming from the audience, from the fans organically to go ahead and ride the, the wave of that. But hopefully now they saw that. There obviously there are people in the company that are seeing the same thing we're seeing and that everybody's talking about. And I mean, he's won a few matches lately, <laughs> which is a sharp departure from what they've done before, but they're going to either push him or Vince is still carrying a grudge because he sucked at being a fucking male model manager. I don't know. Cause even she moved on with her life in WWE. She's now well, an Olympian or whatever the fuck. The no, she's, she's wearing hose on her fucking <laughs> boobs. Um, what? No, she's, she's wearing hose on her boobs. You haven't seen that. I don't know what you're talking about, she's but it sounds wearing, filthy. Well, it is shoosh boy. His t-shirt says shoosh on it, right? S H O O S H. I see where this is going. Well, okay. she has now, since she's joined the group, <laughs> she is now wearing his shirt, but it's trimmed in the middle so that you can see her cleavage. And she's got a over the shoulder, one piece type of thing on over the top of it. So all you can see is H O O S hose. Is Russo writing for them again? It it one would think that, but no, apparently he's still depressed because everybody's forgotten him. Well, we'll see what happens with LA Knight, but Jim, on that topic, because a lot of listeners have sent it in, and after this we'll get to uh, a few other things, I do want to make mention of something that was apparently tweeted out by Vince Russo. And by the, by the way, God damn it, somebody, if I ever have to go back and forth with somebody whose opinion I supposedly don't give a shit about, about how great I am or was, and or have to lament about how how bad the wrestling business was to me when I gave all to it, like this simpering jackass. Please, somebody come over here and hit me in the head with a fucking club. Well, let's go to this actual tweet. From Vince Russo on Twitter, at the Vince Russo, with a black and white photo of himself. Yeah, yeah, he's looking it, sad. It, it's a no, it's a current picture of him. I've seen this, a current picture of him in his office at his his podcasting location in black and white, and because he's sad and he wants a somber. T it's an artistic photo of him to match his mood that he's reporting on. Here is the tweet. Man, sometimes it just gets tough. I would love to stop watching WWE Raw. I would love to stop critiquing the show. Unfortunately, I am paid good money to do so, and bills still have to get paid. I look forward to a time when I can eliminate pro wrestling from my life altogether. And, and uh, conversely, pro wrestling is looking forward to that same day. It's a curse. <laughs> because it has brought on deep depression for years. But it's also a blessing because I was good at it. <laughs> Which enabled me to still pay the bills through it some 32 years later. Truthfully, though, at the end of the day, I wish I would have just chosen another profession. But if I'm going to be completely honest, it chose me. 
I didn't choose it. <laughs> That's the best writing he's ever done. You know, actually, he spelled all the words right and everything, as I recall, didn't he? Nothing is like all in caps or anything. Like, that's the best. Yeah. And that's no, actually good. No Z instead of S. That's actually really good. That's, the, that's he, really good. For the first time in his life, he was trying to appeal to the literary crowd. Uh, Hence this, the black and white photo. Yeah. <laughs> this stuff writes itself. Where do I start? Number one, you wish you could stop watching Monday Night Raw. I've seen his YouTube numbers. If our YouTube numbers were his YouTube numbers, I wouldn't watch a second of any of this shit. Because I wouldn't even be doing it. God damn, for the, this amount of fucking viewership and listenership and money that we're making i still fucking wrestle with my conscience over watching these programs much less the goddamn paltry 15 cents in chinese money in a fucking cup on the street corner that he's getting so i i, I have a hard time having sympathy secondly maybe now this is poetic justice because all those years all of the Real wrestling fans, as well as everybody in the business, had to fucking be held down and watch his horse shit. And we felt that some of us were willing to pay to not have to watch it. So now, tit for tat. What's good for the goose is good for the shit stain. And finally, it chose me. No, you sat outside Vince and Linda McMahon's respective offices with your hat and your dick in your hand trying to stooge and lie and connive and undercut your way into the goddamn magazine. And once you got a goddamn office in the corner, then you've applied that same tactic to trying to get involved in everything else. And you were humored by a billionaire that didn't know what it felt like to lose a fight because he never had before. And you have subsisted on that for the past, what is it now, uh, two, 23 fucking years. Closed in on 24. You've done a shit body of work and people think you're a fucking joke. And there's never even any of that, you know, he's an asshole, but we got to give the devil his due. He was the best at what he did. No, there was none of that because you weren't and you never will be. And you should have chosen another line of work that you might have been good at. But for people to supposedly have sympathy for this fucking cretin, this clown, this imbecile, this moron, this lunatic, just go, oh, golly, I had a two-year run in a business that I got into accidentally, and now nobody will fucking hire me again because I haven't done anything worthwhile in the past 23 years. Good God. And here's the problem. He's the same age as I am, Brian. Are you guys the same age? I think he might be He might be six months older. Oh, I didn't even realize that. One or the other. But the point is, he's still bemoaning the fact that he doesn't have a job related to wrestling, and I'm still trying to get rid of the last remaining ones that I've got. So we couldn't be further apart, once again, he and I. <sighs> but I do, I feel so sorry for him because he's in black and white. This is good. I like this writing here. He should do more of this. Like sympathy cards or something. <laughs> I don't know. But Jim, uh, we're going to We're talk sorry for your late ovulation. <laughs> you can make a lot of money with that one. With the ovulation line of cards. Yeah. 
All right, well, Jim, somehow moving on from here, you know, we can't go to where I was going to go to next coming out of ovulation. <laughs> um, NXT had a match, and I unfortunately did not get to see it because I did not um, set the DVR. It's my own fault. I'll find a way to see it. I understand you did. I did. Braun Breaker versus Ilya Dragunov. And you would like it. You would want to see it. It wasn't like an epic half-hour you know, classic main event of a pay-per-view that is, you know, can't miss. But we've been talking about following Braun Breaker's progress, and we saw the match he had with Seth Rollins. This one was actually better than the one with Seth, I thought, because it was more... Seth was trying to have a real good match and show the office what Braun could do, whereas this was Braun and Ilya sort of combining to show the best of what they each could do and and were comfortable with and it was a it was only on camera probably 10 minutes of it made the air they had a break in the middle but it wasn't as much the match as just again focusing on how these guys in their own way are very unique talents and Braun Breaker could have been a star in any territory in any time period and I can't see many others on the current rosters of either of the major companies. Now, I'm not saying there's none. There's Gunther. You know, we, we've pointed out FTR. You know, we pointed those out, but not many guys on the current rosters could have hung in Mid-South Wrestling or in the Mid-Atlantic Territory or in Florida, in Georgia, you know, at, at, at a high level. And this guy could. And he looks fucking fantastic. And his work has progressed. Everything wasn't perfect in this one. We'll talk about it in a second. But, and then Elia, he's unique. He's never going to be a main event singles guy that's going to carry the company. Braun Breaker will. Unfortunately, Elia was shortchanged a few chromosomes or genetic markups or makers or whatever he's only I, I don't know if i would put it any of those ways well whatever he's only you know he's only five foot eight or nine or whatever it looks like he's not the biggest dog in the yard he doesn't have Braun breaker's physique you could say that okay but at the same time he's unique and he's a a fantastic baby face underdog because now that Braun breaker's a heel Ilya, with that, the way that he sells and the facial expressions he has and the body language, when he takes a bump and he looks like he's in pain and then he's pulling himself by the ropes and trying to drag himself to his feet, that kind of guy, as an upper-level underdog babyface or not to shoehorn him in it, but if, if he found the right tag team partner as a tag team guy, whatever, he's got all kinds of value to the company and his matches are different. And if they hopefully bring him up to the main roster, it would be so much, not only so much better, but different for those programs than everybody. Yes, he's trained in NXT, but he was wrestling beforehand and he's different anyway. You're not going to make this guy wrestle the same way and look the same way as everybody else. He's a little Tasmanian devil. And he's always in, in motion in some way or in action or in, in emotion and showing it. And they really, they had a good stiff back and forth match. Smash mouth offense. 
And Elia would fight from underneath most of the time because Breaker's bigger, but at the same time, he'd get his flurries. And and Elia's got that style, the modern style, but he makes it work. Remember when we saw Elia and Gunther? I think that's still my favorite modern match that I've seen from anybody. And they traded German suplexes, and they, you know, uh, at the same time had a slugfest where Braun Breaker throws a heck of a punch, even better than his dad's, right, to the head, but he throws it with his body, and he looks like a man doing it. And the one, the one real botch was Breaker went for the bulldog off the top rope to catch Elia when he was standing with his back to the corner. And he got a little too much jump and he came straight down and just kind of clotheslined Elia in the back of the head and went straight over him. And Elia couldn't take the bump quick enough. But it looked kind of like it might have knocked him out anyway. So he fell to be, you know, to the to the mat face first. But anyway, you know, they they got false finishes going. Where Elia hit a coast-to-coast drop kick and then a big flying kick and got a two-count. And then came off the top rope, but Braun speared him and looked like it knocked a shit out of him, two count. And they're selling in between these things. And then Braun went for his finish, but Elia turned it into a DDT and struggled, but hit a power bomb, got a two count. And the other big forearm, and got a two count. And then Braun hit a... I mean, they were knocking the shit out of each other. Braun hit a big clothesline. Elia came back with the knee and then an elbow to the back of the head and got the three count. Elia over Braun Breaker, which surprised the shit out of me. But I can't say he didn't deserve it because what a fight. And it didn't look, it didn't look like here's this big guy obviously stooging for this little guy's athletic, you know, gymnastic bullshit like you see everywhere. It was a little plucky fucking guy that wasn't going to quit fighting a bigger guy that's jacked up and was hitting him with everything he had. And again, Ily is unique. Sad to say, I'm sorry, he won't be the WWF universal, undisputed, recognized world champion probably more often than not. And Braun Breaker will. But both these guys are fucking great in their own way. So I enjoyed it. So it's been a long time now. I shouldn't say a long time, but it's been a while since we first saw Braun Breaker as a babyface, raw, on TV early. Yeah. Now he's a heel. You've seen him, you know, not every week, at least not since the early weeks, but big matches. How do you think he's progressing? How much, he is. How much time in uh, developmental is too much time in developmental? What should they do with him? Well, he he's progressing, and now I think he's trimmed down some. I I think he looks a little smaller, but still in great shape than he was when he was a rookie. He's also now that he's a heel, he had a little sit down backstage pre tape, and they may be writing this stuff for him, but it sounded pretty goddamn like something he would say. He made it natural, and he's got emotion, he's got facial expression, so that part has come along. He's still. Maybe with the bulldog or, you know, with a few other things, he still may be a little green, but his athletic ability is off the charts and he has definitely progressed. I don't know. On this one, I will leave it to them because they're with the guy every day. 
And I don't think that there's a situation where it's like, well, we don't like this guy. We're not going to bring him up even though he's ready. They obviously see the potential and they need stars and he's going to be one. And so it's not like they're going to leave him down there to languish. I assume he doesn't have an attitude problem. That was Tom Pritchard told me about Seth Rollins or Tyler Black at that point. Um, they didn't like that he wouldn't stop slapping his leg on the super kick and he was still doing Ring of Honor style stuff because he was better than everybody else in NXT at that point or whether it was Florida at that time. He was, but they didn't care. And so that's what held him there was because he had to finally break down and start doing shit their way. I don't see anything they'd want to change in Braun Breaker. So... I don't think that they're going to leave him there any longer than he has to be, but they're still monitoring everything about him and they don't want to rush it. When you've got, I mean, let's face it, there was no other way to put The Rock on television in 1996 but to put him on fucking TV. But now they have a developmental program. They have other, you know, fucking avenues. So I don't think they should rush it. And I think as soon as they do bring him up, they got to have a plan. And since he's getting more comfortable as a heel, I think that would be great to start out and then see how the people take to him. Because remember, that same way his dad got over. He was a heel, but he was such an entertaining heel and it was so unique with his personality that people started taking to him. So we'll we'll see what happens. But you know, they got to have a plan for from the time he debuts for the following 18 to 24 months because that's going to be, he's not just going to languish on the roster until somebody decides to do something with him and he starts getting over. They're either going to push him and he's going to get over or they're going to waste it because he's a fucking star. And in terms of Ilya, and unfortunately, you're probably right considering the way traditionally, other than some rare exceptions like Rey Mysterio or Daniel Bryan, the people who get pushed as top stars in WWE, and those were incredible talents, not that he isn't, but I don't know if that would happen. Where do you see his future? He has incredible facial reactions. Again, I didn't see this match. Physical matches that the audience can feel. Him against Gunther on the main roster would probably light up the audience the same way it did in NXT. Oh my God, yeah. And there's probably some other people, even some people size-wise, like him and Pete Dunne, him and Butch, would probably be okay because it's not a big size difference. What kind of future on the main roster do you see for someone like Dragunov? It's right there. All you have to do is introduce... And we heard him talk on an NXT program, and he was practically crying, you know, to the audience after his you know, big victory or whatever. The point is he can talk, he can communicate with that face. He's physically in the ring. He's a great underdog that the big guys can beat up and he can fight back and he can believably win because the guy takes a ridiculous ass kicking and he's likable. That's the gimmick. Hubra Ilya Dragunov and he's got the accent and he talks to people and he says, I meant not to be big, but I will win. And, you know, and then he does more often than not, but not to the ridiculous point. And then you get an upper level, upper card babyface, not the top guy, but still a main event level type guy that people will feel sorry for when he loses, but they'll be behind him when he's still fighting. That's the gimmick. 
Well, we shall see how WWE messes that up in the future. But, <laughs> but Jim, going from Braun Breaker versus Ilya Dragunov to something else that we watched over the last couple of days, Dark Side of the Ring's latest episode on Adrian Adonis. Yes, and I was looking forward to this because I think I told you this on the phone or on one of my phones when I was having phone problems over the last week. I never met Adrian Adonis one time, was never in the same place at the same time, never even saw him wrestle in person. How about that? I don't know that there's that many people you can say over the last 50 years in the wrestling business that I never either met or even saw wrestle in person. So I was interested in this because of the, you know, obviously everybody knows pretty much these days he was a great worker that got massively overweight and then got killed in a car wreck, you know, pr pretty much before the explosion of modern wrestling when it, you know, uh, by the really his his run in the WWF lasted from what? 83 to 87. And that might now be the only time people really see any of his stuff. But nevertheless, and a lot of his stuff, unfortunately, because of how he was booked and what he was portraying, and it's a ridiculous portrayal, and we could talk about that. Yeah. It's not going to be, you know, there are no adorable Adrian Adonis new action figures from WWE. No. And they have all the other legends get figures. That's not going to happen. Can they even show that on, on Peacock anymore? The adorable Adrian stuff with the people's signs in the audience and things he was saying? Is that. Because I know they've, they've they cut all sorts edited of stuff. some other things. Yeah, I don't know. I don't so, know. Well, here's the thing. Um, and speaking of which, um, I don't know. I wonder how long did it take him to edit out all of Uncle Dave's you-knows? Because Dave actually came off mostly coherent on this one. But anyway, here's the thing. It, this wasn't a documentary on his... Again, his life in wrestling, it was more like the story of, you know, briefly how he got big and then how he went wrong and then how he died. So it was skipped over completely how I'd still don't really know. You've read a book, so you might know more than me. Um, or you a book. You've read a book or two in your time. You've I've read, read a book. book. I've read a book. How did he even break in? Because I know that Keith, and here's another thing, his name was Keith Frankie, F-R-A-N-K-E, but many times, because that's kind of an odd name, and in wrestling, there's typos galore, a lot of times he was Keith Franks, and he was already wrestling in what, the mid-70s? Yeah. What, uh, how did he break in? He was trained by Fred Atkins. Good Lord. Isn't that something? Um, and he broke in, you know, upstate New York, I think, uh, some stuff in Canada, but you know, he broke in under Fred Atkins, Fred Atkins trained him, trained a tough kid, trained him to be even tougher and sent him out into the wrestling world. Because they did, uh, they had a friend of his from, from the West side of Buffalo that apparently spent some time in prison when Adrian died, he couldn't go to the funeral, but he said that they were all street guys. They were in a gang and they were fighting people or whatever. And, and Keith wanted something more. And Fred Atkins, by the way, we kind of glossed over that just like everybody in the world still knows, but Fred Atkins was an old timer and was a major name, or at least uh, the, probably his, 
biggest area of popularity was in Toronto back in what the fifties. Yeah, that's right. And then did he not manage for a period of time also, or am I, am I going crazy there? Did Fred Atkins manage? Did Fred Atkins manage uh, in, later in his career? Maybe I've, I'm trying to think if I've seen newspaper ads. Maybe I'm crazy. But nevertheless, and it, well, he was involved at some point with the Toronto office, so I don't know. But point is, Toronto, Buffalo, that area, hotbed of wrestling. He meets Fred Atkins. Okay, he gets trained, and that, he was trained the old fashioned way. We can be assured of that. But the first. Basically, they just said, "Go ahead." You know what, Fred Atkins? Because I'm thinking about it. I think it must be him. That magazine cover with Baba when he was a heel with in America. Baba. That's right. It was Fred Atkins with him. Fred Atkins, because and they sent Baba over specifically to hit all the major markets, but uh, one that he hit specifically was Toronto. Would they have assigned Fred Atkins to be like his Timmy White with Andre? Possibly. Or Frank Valois with Andre. Well, at various points. Anyway, nevertheless, um, the uh, in the Dark Side episode, they the, his friend mentioned he wanted to be a wrestler, and then they spent about 30 seconds talking about how he was in Amarillo where he would challenge actual marks, get in the state 10 minutes with me and win $10,000. And that was the most ridiculous reenactment they've ever done. That was, yeah. The and, guy ripping the flyer off the wall and standing in the ring with it. Yeah. And I'm thinking the blood flying from the, you know. <laughs> but nevertheless, that was 30 seconds on Amarillo. And then suddenly he's in the AWA. And that was what, 1979, 80? 79, I think. 79. 79? Well, he went from Portland to the AWA, right? So, yeah. And, yeah. and Portland was not mentioned. Either, so was, anyway, either was LA, where him and Piper first hooked up. Right. But that's why I said basically, instead of this being a documentary on Adrian Adonis as a wrestler, it was more here. He was a tough kid from Buffalo that got in a wrestling business, was a main event guy for eight years and then self-destructed. But Adonis and Ventura, Jesse Ventura, as they were the East West connection, right? That is correct. In the AWA, California, New York City. That was the deal. So they were able to, they had Jim Brunzel, they had Greg Gagne. These other guys were praising his work. Everybody praised his work. And, but you could see in this footage from the pictures of him when he first, really first broke in. What do you, what do you think he weighed? 240, 250? I'd say like 250, yeah. Well, then he's still, he's, he's 270 or 280 probably in the AWA, but he's still taking the arm drags, and the backdrops and the big bumps on the drop kicks. And that's where his work got over. And let's face it. Jesse Ventura was never noted as a great in-ring worker, but because he and Adonis together, Ventura was the talker. Adonis wasn't bad, but he wasn't Jesse, but Adonis could outwork, you know, any tag team. So that's what kind of made the thing work and they looked great together and then when he goes to the wwf again in this show they just boom now it's 83 and there's adrian adonis and dick murdoch and the north south connection exactly and while there probably weren't two better in-ring workers in the business when they were both motivated 
And I never met Adrian Adonis. I can't imagine being in a car with Dick Murdoch with a fucking with a fucking guy from Buffalo, New York doing cocaine. I don't know how that fucking how that worked out at all. Well, they got along pretty good, but that was one of the themes. And I'll mention the book because it was pretty good. Flowers for Adrian, The Life and Death of Adrian Adonis by, I hope I'm getting this right, John Elul, E-L-L-U-L. It's on Amazon, wherever you find your favorite books. You know, him and Ventura weren't exactly pals outside the ring, but it worked perfectly on camera. Him and Murdoch were even more polar opposite. <laughs> but, you know, they got along. And, you know, because remember, they also worked in Japan together. Yeah, and, and that was part of the the odd couple tag team pairing worked, and and yeah, and Adonis and Murdoch for Inoki, correct? Were yeah a top team in the early eighties, right around. The, I mean, again, they were the WWF tag team champions when WWF and New Japan still had the relationship, so it was a big deal that they were over there. And again, that's when all of not only all the top Americans went to Japan instead of just the guys who didn't have a fucking deal anywhere else but also the japanese guys were on top of their game and their main event guys were some of the best in the world remember when we when we continually talk fondly about new japan and japanese wrestling this was 1983 before their business had gone to complete shit too and we should always note and again this wasn't a life documentary this was more about just the bad stuff in his life nothing about southwest who in their dying days, owing money to the USA Network already. Yeah. Owing money to Norm Keitzer. They still owe the company I own money. Yeah. <laughs> the Blanchards. Bastards. For programs and stuff, which I own the rights to. They owed people money. They were trying to do things, but they were trying hard. They invaded Houston against Paul Bosch. They used to have their talent on his cards. Now they were at the summit. And they needed to make a new world champion. And the guy they chose, and they had... Tully Blanchard, Gino Hernandez, Bob Orton Jr., Terry Funk, so many people on that show, was Adrian Adonis. Yeah. So when we want to talk about how good he really was, a company trying hard to compete in a quickly emerging national landscape went to him to be their champion. And unfortunately, they went to him to be their champion, and he won the belt in a nearly empty building. And it didn't last long. And then he came back like a couple times, and <laughs> that was it. Some wacky promos, though. You know, Dave said on this that Adrian was a good promo, too. And he was, but he was a weird promo. Like, you would listen to what he was saying. Like, what is he talking? Like, clearly, this guy's nuts. You couldn't even really follow his train of thought. Do you remember seeing his yes, promos? Yes, and And I agree with you, and I think that is part of the next topic that was covered on the program was Bret Hart talking about Adrian's cocaine use. And... How that he ended up when he first went to the WWF in 84, he went in the room and there was Adrian Adonis and a bunch of the other guys. He didn't have a problem with naming numerous names. And they're just chopping up lines of cocaine. But I knew that it was important I be in that room to learn from these veterans. So I sat up until four o'clock in the morning doing cocaine. <laughs> and then I love Brett. I really do. But that was, it, that was funny. And also it was funny when he, he finally said, well, then we realized that cocaine's not the friendly drug we thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, him and Jim Neidhart realized that. But anyway, so that was the, <laughs> the root of Adonis's problems. And I think somebody on Twitter had said 
was he the only guy in the world that became a cocaine addict and and ballooned up to 400 pounds? I forget I, I forget who it was. It may have been Brett I forget who it was, but they said it perfectly. If you get really coked up and then you eat a bunch of shit and you fall asleep and that happens all the time. I think it's Brunzel. Brunzel. Yeah, Matt, you go back to the hotel after the show, you do a bunch of drugs and then you're going to eat a bunch of things and fall asleep. I don't know how much time he was spending in the gym. I mean, that wasn't really his thing. Goddamn, I mean, you have to be uh, genetically predisposed to something like that, though, because what you just described could have been told about a number of people in the wrestling business, and it never... But the point is, you saw as the, as the videos moved on that he was getting fatter and fatter, and at the same time, they were saying he was on more drugs and more drugs. And... You know, they, they made the point he was a great family man. He actually, he loved his wife and his wife, who seemed way different than Matt Bourne's wives and others on his episode. She loved him. His daughters seemed nice. They didn't have anything bad to say about him. There was no marital domestic strife or whatever. He just was, couldn't get himself off of drugs and couldn't take care of his, his body. And then... <laughs> I remember a little, I didn't know all the details and don't know. I mean, this could be wrestlers exaggeration, but I remember him and Spivey getting in a fucking fight, but I didn't know all the details. And that was apparently is bad. When Spivey was a rookie, Adonis was impaired and being stiff with him and fucking him around in the match. Well, and he wasn't then, a rookie. He was already in the business a few years. Well, if that was 86, that would have been, what, two years maybe he was in a business? American Starship was, I think, 84, right? Yeah. And in, and in 85, they got rid of him in, in Crockett because he was, Scott Hall had already left, and he was Starship Coyote, I think <laughs> Spivey was. Jesus. One of Dusty's rare swing and a miss. Anyway, he got pissed at Adrian and the Bulldogs, <laughs> for, of all people, took him out of the arena. And then the next night they have to work again and Spivey had enough of him and knocked him out. And then they got back in the locker room and Adonis tried to further it and he knocked him out again, apparently sent him to the hospital. So he got knocked out twice in the same night. And apparently they said he never got over that um, in front of all the guys and everything. Have you ever seen anything like that? Just someone who had, well, actually, now that I think about it, we kind of saw a version of this in front of the camera with different uh, intentions. I was going to say a badass get their ass handed to them. And, it, you know, they said how it changed. It changed the way people saw Adonis. It changed the way he felt, everyone thinks. And I was going to say the one example we could think of, actually, is when they set Dr. Death up in the Brawl for All. Yeah. That was well, in front of the camera. But that, again, that wasn't a setup. It wasn't a setup. It was a match. And Doc tore his hamstring. Then it became a setup because he's a one-legged man. But uh, nobody was trying to be vindictive over Doc. Uh, not to get into another topic. But no, no, no. But just the idea that here's this tough guy has an impeccable reputation as a tough guy. And all of a sudden, you, because of what happens, it changes the way you see them. And it may change the way they see themselves. Well, yes, yes. And and that's why I say it, 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 at a setup, it's like you're doing something to a tough guy that you know is going to bring him down. They've set up Dr. Death. They thought he was going to win. Everybody thought he'd win. And it, you know, no, no, bad choice of words. Bad choice of words. Okay. But nevertheless, but yeah, and I've never seen a locker room upset, right? I've never seen fucking 
Riggy Morton kicked the shit out of Andre the Giant or whatever. But yes, it would it, it would tend to change not only people's perceptions of the guy that got his ass kicked, but also fuck with that guy if he was on drugs already. And that was the, the thing is the, well, go ahead. What were you going to say? Well, I was going to say just the actual gimmick itself. You know, there have always been different people who believe that it was Vince punishing Adonis for either his weight gain or his substance abuse issues. And, you know, again, Jimmy Snuka was still on the fucking roster. How are you going to punish yeah. one guy for substance abuse, considering a lot of people there uh, had issues, but the gimmick was given to him. And, you know, you hear people now talk about, it and they say, his character was gay, and they had the footage from TNT. A lot of people always forget about it, where he says, I'm gay. Yeah. He just says it, because he had previously wished everyone a gay New Year, and that was like as far as he had gone. But it's a weird representation of whatever they were trying to do, because he's saying he's gay. The audience is supposed to believe he's gay. Unfortunately, the WWE wanted the audience to have a negative reaction because he was gay. That's unfortunately where a lot of people were still. But it was so preposterous. But he was dressing whole, like a woman. So like, that's not like yeah. a gay thing. Like that's, a, that's where it's like all of a sudden, all right, you'll be gay, dressed like a woman. That's not what gay people do. And the, and the, the eye makeup, which looked more like, you know, the makeup of the Maoris in the South Pacific rather than any kind of flamboyant Liberace type of thing. And it, it was a horrible gimmick, a rotten gimmick that wasn't even focused in its bad taste. It was all over the fucking page. And... Bret Hart said he, he thought that Adrian dug into it and tried to get it over just to prove that he could get anything, no matter how stupid and goofy over. But it, it pretty much, I mean, that was the last time that the national audience saw him was like that. Wearing pink dresses, weighing 400 fucking pounds. And, um, you know, they didn't even mention it here. Ronnie Piper leaves to go do body slam. Adrian Adonis takes over. He has the flower shop. So now yeah. he's doing an interview show every week, getting more and more over the top with, again, the makeup, the outfit. He's wearing dresses. <clears throat> so then it's like, you know, he, again, he's saying he's gay, but he's also, for some reason, wearing women's clothes. That's not what gay people automatically do. It was a weird way to try to rile up the audience. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know whether Vince was punishing him for his weight or potentially for his drug use or whatever, or, you know, as we've seen, sometimes Vince will believe that something is great and nobody else in the world sees it and it flops spectacularly. And then Vince doesn't have any stuck to him because he's had so many hits and so many successes, but the stain sticks to the talent forever of either the red rooster or the gobbledygooker or the fucking adorable Adrian Adonis in the dresses and hair bows or whatever. But you, everybody, everybody thought that he was doing that to Adrian to fuck with him in some kind of way. But I wasn't there then. And I don't know whether this is another one of those things where Vince was like, why can't everybody see this is great, pal. But one way or another, it was one of the worst gimmicks in the history of wrestling. And the problem was, is that at that point, the guy was so preposterously, I mean, here's a six, a guy that's six feet two and he's 400 pounds. He's still taking backdrops and monkey flips and going upside down over the top rope. But he looked ridiculous, even without the fucking gimmick. Uh, but, you know, that's the thing. If Vince was punishing him, 
This guy was, you know, Adonis as adorable Adrian was main eventing. He main evented the Garden. Yeah, I think Bruno's last match was a tag match at the Garden. I mean, last match at the Garden was in a tag match against Adonis and maybe Randy Savage. He had matches well, with Hogan. They eventually got him ready for Piper, his buddy. So he's working with someone in his own clique for WrestleMania three, and then he leaves. But whatever they were doing, well, and that or not was the doing, thing. They shaved his head. Piper shaved his head at WrestleMania three, and then he was gone. It's like fuck you on the way out. We'll shave the head. Well, Brutus Beefcake actually uh, shaved it, and he didn't even shave it. He tried to shave it, but his hair was wet, so they couldn't shave it. As you know, how that goes. I've experienced that issue. But then he went to the AWA eventually, and his hair was back to its normal color, or at least it was dyed brown, and. He was still pretty big, and he teamed up with Bob Orton against the Rockers. That's one of the match Midnight Rockers. That's one of the matches people talk about. They showed him and Greg Gagne there, and Greg says he couldn't go 10 minutes because of his weight. And then the next time people saw him, like they showed in here, in Japan, he had dropped a lot of weight. And that was likely his future road, whether that was a road back to WWF, a road into the NWA. Whatever it was, it was going to start with him working hard, teaming with Murdoch yeah. in Japan. And again, he was 34 years old when he showed up in the AWA, 400 pounds. He had time to to do something about it. And he got down, they said, to 300. And you saw the footage from Japan that he was much lighter, still too big. But there, a big change had been made. And you're right, a, a guy in the mid-30s and the late 80s, as more guys got tied up to either WWF or WCW, Guys like that that were already known to the Japanese audience and could go were highly prized. And, you know, he would have had, I would think, easily another 10 years in Japan as long as he didn't get that, you know, that big again or have any more serious drug issues. But, and I didn't know that he'd come directly from a Japanese tour right back to California and then boom straight to Newfoundland for the, and see, that's the, that's the dark side of at that point, not being signed to WCW or the WWF. There were no more territories by 88 that were paying any kind of legitimate money to where you either had to do Japan or you had to do the, what it what it what am I the word I'm searching for the pioneer independence there weren't really independent shows much in the United States by that point but like the Bear Man Dave McKigney ran in Canada and these these other tours that guys would get that would fill in in between their Japanese dates and that's where obviously the accident happened and they brought in. Uh, Mike Kelly, who's the surviving member of the Kelly twins, his brother Pat was killed in the wreck also. And I saw them in the mid-70s. They came to Tennessee. They were here for a while. They were the WWA uh, tag team champions for Bruiser in the late 70s. Saw them in Indianapolis. And, you know, I felt so bad for this guy because his twin brother was his best friend and his, you know, his whole life they were together. And they, they were a good journeyman, as they used to say, heel tag team. Nothing spectacular, but it, you know, it worked. And the, the twin thing, you know, they could switch and blah, blah, blah. And the Bear Man story, Dave McKigney, I honestly, 
did not know that he had multiple fucking bears living in his house. I, we, everybody in the wrestling business had heard the story about the bear getting his wife. Now it uh, killing his wife, I should say. And the story that we had always heard, the, the newspaper clarified it. The bear was in heat and was unpredictable. The story in the locker rooms was always that his wife was on her period and the bear went crazy. But it's a different kind of heat, apparently. But nevertheless, he has booked these tours. He, he used to run, he was one of the very early outlaw promoters in Canada, especially that would run smaller towns in Ontario or in some of these provinces out away from the populated areas that people wouldn't, you know, normally have regular shows. He'd run tours and take the bear and a blah, blah, blah. So that's how Adrian Adonis ends up booked in Newfoundland. And they're in a, a wreck, McKigney and the Kelly twins and Adonis going to a town to just to do an appearance, apparently they said, to promote the show of whatever. And Mike Kelly on this one had said they swerved to miss a bear. And again, the story was, we always heard, and it was in one of the newspaper clippings, they swerved to miss a moose. But one way or another, they swerved to miss some kind of animal and went off the bridge and into the creek. And ugh, that must not have been pretty. And it was not described, you know, in detail on the program, but enough from Mike Kelly that you got the idea you didn't want to be there. And as well from Ricky Johnson, Rocky's brother, who now we know has adopted the name Soul Man in honor of his brother. That was a weird thing to include in this, wasn't it? It certainly was, because <laughs> I don't think Ricky Johnson is still wrestling in his 60s, is he, or 70s? Wait, I don't think he's in his 70s. It has to be maybe 60s, but I haven't heard of him wrestling. The he's soul just man. the Soul Man around the grocery store. But anyway, did they say, did they say oh, can we just record you? Just say your name and uh, who you are. And then he said that, and then they said, can you do one without the soul man? He's like, no, <laughs> I will not. I have the soul man. But he seemed like a very nice guy. Let's He's honest. a nice guy. Yeah. The soul man. But, uh, and, and, you know, that's Adrian Adonis, I guess, for everybody that, like you and I that have, have studied and or been around for a long period of time, the wrestling business, know that he was well thought of and a, a great worker and had been numerous places before his WWF run and the dresses and the ridiculous gimmick. And even before the WWF run as himself, the badass from New York, the street fighter with, you know, Murdoch as his partner or whatever, but Keith Franks and later Adrian Adonis was, you know, was a, a better talent in the territories probably than he was on the main show because the big the big show because he was in better shape and more motivated and on fewer drugs although i've said this before and i'll say it again 1984 tnt everyone should go out of their way to see it one of the greatest segments in wwe history mean gene on the bowery in new york city <laughs> waiting for adrian adonis and dick murdoch to meet adrian's family and friends and people adrian adonis who's from buffalo new york although originally you know, he was put up for adoption. His family was from the Lower East Side, but he didn't grow up there, so he didn't really know anyone. So he's there with Murdoch and Mean Gene on the street, 
You get the real winos. <laughs> you get some of the weird people on Houston Street. It's fantastic. Murdoch and Adonis on the streets of New York with Mean Gene. And see, that's the kind of stuff Vince loved. He loved to go out and just catch people being weird or making people uncomfortable or whatever. That's why he wanted me and Minnie Vader in the bathroom at the bus station. But it just, it didn't work out. Do you consider Minnie Vader a member of Camp Cornette? I, I don't know that uh, many, I think he actually, he turned in his resignation when he and his opponent both teamed up on me and pulled my pants off and sent me out into the streets on Shotgun Saturday night. All right, so you just have hurt feelings, so you don't want to say yeah, anything good I, about him. So he said, yeah, so therefore I ain't giving him any flowers. <laughs> he, pulled me, he pulled my pants down. I'm not giving him any, any flowers. Well, that was the Dark Side of the Ring episode on Adrian Adonis. And I have to say, the talking heads were really good. The wife was fantastic. Uh, the friend from upstate New York, I thought, was really great. You know, I know a lot of people jump on him. They say he says things that aren't true or says things that aren't true. I guess that is the way to say that. <laughs> Greg Gagne, to me, seems like the nicest guy. He does have a pleasing personality, Greg. Yeah. He is a pleasant man. Other than that, read the book. Like I said, that's a sad, that's a sad reality. This guy was in one of the biggest matches of WrestleMania 3. The entirety of 1986, he was pushed all over that TV. Where's the legacy from WWE today? You know, they gave him this gimmick. He was there before that gimmick. He may have entered the garden before that gimmick. He was a tag team champion before that gimmick. They gave him that gimmick. There are no current Adrian Adonis action figures. There's no best of Adrian Adonis on Peacock. And that's the saddest thing. Do they all. mention his name? I don't know. I don't know what, I mean, you talking about like a commentary nowadays? I haven't heard his name mentioned or any Adrian Adonis matches uh, being prominently featured on it, even without the gimmick that they probably can't show. That's like I said, the sad reality of it. They gave him a gimmick that sadly in the moment and in its time worked because of homophobia, but they can't even... They can't even talk about it today, WWE. And that's sad because he was a tremendous talent. And he did have a, a wonderful way of pulling off pink dress with, with blonde hair, which is difficult. Well, Jim, let's go from uh, wigs and everything going on over there to Campbell-by-the-Sea. And if that seems like a bad transition, <laughs> it is because I didn't have a better one. At Can hand. we go back to the pink dress and the white carnation? Well, let's talk about this. There is something that a ton of listeners have sent us. They put it on the Cult of Cornet Facebook page, on Twitter, via email. It is an interview that Dave Meltzer did with Chris Van Vliet. Let me say that. Let me say it again. Chris Van Vliet, because I don't think I've ever said his name correctly because I didn't know how to say it. It is confusingly spelled. V-L-I-E-T. I guess that would be Vliet or Vlight. Vlight. And he's on YouTube. You can check out his content. This is one of his videos. It's an interview with Dave Meltzer. And again, a lot of the listeners have been sending it in for various reasons. The one thing that a lot of people have been honing in on are Dave's, I guess, responses to Chris's questions about the star ratings. And the more it goes, his explanations as to what causes a star rating who is he to give a star rating? Like just various things about this star rating that you, in this, fact, created with Norm Dooley. Well, this is not a confrontational interview. Mr. Van Vliet Vliet is, uh, is very respectful. But he, when he starts asking these questions, you can tell that even he knows that he's not necessarily getting anything that makes any fucking sense. 
And by the way, just a factoid that was brought up to me here recently. Do you know that John Moxley has had more five-star matches in the last year than the entire WWF slash WWE as a promotion from 1997 till 2011? Well, that's only because people love those matches more now than any of the other matches were loved in the moment previously. That's, or, or something that like that. That must be it. Or something well, that like that. That must be it. Well, let's go to this. Again, check it out. It's on YouTube. Chris Van Vliet has a channel. I believe it's just his name. And I couldn't pronounce it. You probably can't spell it. I think it's V-L-I-E-T. I just spelled it. Well, here it is. Dave Meltzer talking about five-star matches. We'll break this up several times and talk about various things. I want to talk about your rating system because obviously ratings in wrestling are subjective, but what goes into it for you? What goes into rating a match for you? I just watch the match and when it's over, it's kind of like, what did they accomplish? Um, you know, I mean, did it look good? Did the crowd get off on it? Um, I mean, sometimes the crowd will get off on it because the two personalities are so strong. Sure. And and I don't necessarily think I I I'll just give examples is um Nick Bockwinkle, who who was a brilliant guy. And he would always say, like, if you start the match and the crowd's going crazy for the ring entrance, and that's the hottest part of the match, then how great was the match really? Even if the match is much hot, hotter than a match that starts at zero and you build it up to a level in the entire match, build, 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 which to him and to me as well is like a, the most successful matches. You start at this point, you build, 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 and you peak at the finish. That's, mm -hmm. you know, which means having a good finish. It doesn't, um, but sometimes that, you know, it involves like, you know, a lot of people think the most brilliant finishes, you know, all the referee bumps and the run-ins and all that. And if it works for the crowd, then that's fine. But a lot of people also hate those finishes because they want the clean finish. So they get mad and it's like, <clears throat> sometimes if it doesn't work and people boo at the end or, or, um, groan, I think groan is worse than booing, mm. but, um, you know, just go or let me stop this for a second, Jim. Any thoughts early well, on? I on thought, his... I thought a, a sentence was going to be finished before I called a halt to it. <laughs> I didn't know what it was going to finish. So I wanted to go, you jump. Boy, I tell you what, he, he doesn't spend a lot of money on periods. Does Dave, but, but what, what he's he saying, already, the actual substance of what he's saying, say, yeah. what he had already tried to say was okay. Did these people, did they accomplish something? Did it look good? Did they build to a big finish? What are we talking about every week with the matches that he mostly praises? What did this accomplish? Nothing. It didn't look good. It looked like a bunch of fucking people either falling all over the top of each other, cooperating with each other, or cutting their heads with visible blades on camera. And what do we say? My God, they just did everything they knew how to do until finally they finished with a small package or a goddamn tap out immobile in the middle of the ring because they've run out of shit to do. They didn't build anything. So he's contradicting what he raves about. Well, let's go back to this. Chris Van Vliet with Dave Meltzer. Or, you know, bullshit or, or you know, whatever. Then to me, the finish didn't work. Um, but. You know, it's like it's it's certainly it's about crowd reactions, but it's not like it's not necessarily decibel levels, although that's a big part of it for sure. <laughs> um, you know, if you do a lot of unique, cool things and, um, you know, just do things out of the pattern, do things that kind of like 
shock you like you're i think the one thing with with it's like if you're expecting something and then they do something different and go oh my god if they do they can do that real well like surprise the audience in a good way where they react i like that mm-hmm. you know um <laughs> i like that <laughs> let's stop this for a second again, i like that the question was what goes into your rating of five-star match or what goes into your rating matches i guess not even necessarily just a five-star match these are some of the qualities he looks for i apologize for uh Julio and the gang and the blowers in the background, if you could hear any of that. Sorry, Jace, I guess I should say. But what are your thoughts on his thoughts so far? I, I don't know, because I'm not sure what his fucking thoughts are. Well, if you do something different, that's always good. Except it, he didn't tell us what different is. Possibly different would be not fighting on the floor all the time. Not using furniture. Not doing repetitive cooperative gymnastic flips but those because those are in almost every match but those are in all the matches that he praises so again i'm i'm lost is surprise a necessary component of a excellent match no no it doesn't he doesn't even articulate what the shocking surprise is so you mean well i expected when he jumped up and leaped up in the air in front of his opponent, he was going to drop kick him, but instead he jumped up and farted in his face. Well, that would be surprising, but I don't know if it would be preferable. I don't know what he's fucking talking about. You don't need to surprise people or shock people. With a great match, you just need to have one. Yes, it's easier if they, if you're already over and the issue is already over and you can start out with people with it. But I don't know that... Every once in a while, I was surprised by how good a match was, but it wasn't that I was surprised about something that happened in the match. That's what made it great. That's more of an angle type of thing, a shocking reveal or a debut or something. But I remember one of the greatest matches I ever saw live was one that I was not really particularly looking forward to was Jerry Lawler and Ken Lucas. When Ken Lucas had not been in the Tennessee Territory since before I started watching wrestling on television. Suddenly, 1979, the match is advertised on TV for on Saturday for Tuesday night. And Lawler does an interview with his face beat up saying, well, Ken Lucas got me in, in Birmingham or wherever, but I'm going to get him this week. And there was, he didn't, Lucas had not even been on television. It was a surprise deal in that respect that it was booked. And they went out and had a double juice match that tore the house down, that had people jumping in a fucking ring, throwing shit. It was goddamn incredible. But it was a great match. So anyway. Well, maybe we'll get some more clarity from some more audio from Dave. I have to say, Chris Van Vliet is in a uh, very nice room. It's well lit. He's using a nice camera. There's a YouTube plaque in the back. Dave is holding on to his microphone like if he lets go, he's going to get sucked into the abyss. And he looks like he has a strong smell of vinegar. (laughs) <laughs> no one else is gonna get why that's funny but let's go back to more audio here rather than just pattern <laughs> but pattern when it works simple pattern is not wrong either and you know it's like at the end of the day it's just kind of like what's working and what's getting the crowd going um and <sighs> you know just execute execution mm-hmm. some of it I, it's it's a complicated thing but it's and, but in other ways it's not complicated you just kind of watch it and like when it's over and where the yeah. audience is at that moment and and how it's built and everything like that's like oh whatever and i mean i know like so let's stop it so is that an explanation it's where the 
audience is at the end of the match? I don't know what the fuck he's talking about. Again, it's a simple thing like TV Guide and the Leonard Malton Movie Guide. Movies get one, two, three, or four stars and duds. And one is that was the shits. A dud is that was one of the worst things we've ever seen. One is that was the shits. Two is that was pretty average. Three is that was really good. And four is, wow, they tore the house down. There it is. If if they're shitty looking fake work, if it the match doesn't make any sense, if there's obvious cooperation, if there's nonsensical garbage that doesn't need to be, if a guy is out on the floor climbing a ladder to try to dive off onto some piece of furniture on somebody when the object is to get in the ring and win the match, then that takes away because that's fucking stupid. It's not hard to figure out. Just have a functioning brain and figure out, are these guys having a, having a believable conflict and how exciting was it? There you go. But again, with that argument, how does that justify good star ratings for matches where the match was fine, but the room was dead? Well, let's uh, get more audio here. Like tons of people and we're all you know like we're all kind of close you know when but one of the things it's like it's like i think people um to me like i'll just be an example it's like if if i'm sitting at a show and my best friend is sitting with me and he'll go like would you give the match and i'll go four he goes i thought it was four and a half the general thing is is okay we agreed it was a great okay. match yeah. it was a great match you're never going to be like like my thing you know it's like you're not supposed to agree with four and a quarter, but if you think it's a two, then then we disagreed. And there's nothing wrong with that either. It's just what we did was disagree. But sometimes people go like, oh, you know, why'd you give this four and three quarters and not five? And it's like, well, if I gave it four and three quarters and you gave it five and it's fine, it means we agreed. A hundred percent we agreed. That's a quarter of a star. Of course, that's, you know, it's like- a Let me stop that for a second. We 100% agree if we're both giving something a different rating? Yes, but all of my friends get better ratings than the people that I don't like. <laughs> but that doesn't, don't read anything into that. And again, there's, he's not explaining anything. And there's, and yes, of course, you're going to enjoy a match to your statement earlier with a crowd. When the crowd is dead, like in the early days of getting Japanese tapes before the people really got into, I mean, they were always crazy over the funks and Brody, but before they got into making noise in every match, right? You remember those days, they'd go to the smaller towns to do a TV taping outside of the big markets in Japan, and the crowd would sit there and politely applaud, right? They wouldn't scream and yell. Yeah. And you would see, I remember a Von Erichs match, tag team match, Kevin and, and David. That's how early it was. That was so quiet in the arena you could hear them calling spots to each other in English because they thought that nobody spoke English in Japan. They were like, I'll drop kick, you drop down, you drop down. And you hear it plain as day. But, the, but at the same time, yes, a dead crowd does hinder a match, but still the performance you can rate, does that mean that a movie is Citizen Kane worse when you watch it in a theater because you're the only one in the theater? And and yes, viscerally, when you're in a... That's why wrestling in the territories was so much more exciting because when you are in an arena full of people, whether it be 2,000, 5,000, 10,000, however many, that's all going batshit over something, it's catching. 
It's contagious. You get swept up in it and you are it then enjoy the experience more because it's a fucking thing going on. If you're sitting there in the building watching the same exact match by yourself, it's going to be the same match. It was done as well. It was performed as well, but because part of that live experience is the fans being involved, you know, you're naturally predisposed to like something more if there's a bunch of people involved in it there in the building. That's why it always looks good on television when people are going apeshit. And wrestling got much, much stronger reactions in the territory days, as we all know, that's without dispute. Well, let's go back to this, which is also uh, without a dispute, at least so far. We'll see how it turns out here. But let's go back to Dave talking about how he rates a match, why he rates a match. What goes into the ratings of these matches with Chris Van Vliet? Movie critic, um, you know, where you, it's just the same thing. If you're if you're within a half star, you agreed. If you're within a star, you're pretty much agreeing. You know, if you're two stars apart, you're disagreeing. And yeah, the, the, right difference with the, movie, the difference with the movie critics, though, is you go on Rotten Tomatoes and there's 93 ratings for a movie. When you're talking about pro wrestling matches, it really comes down to like, there's sure there's some people rating them, but your rating matters a lot. Yeah, well, I, I, <laughs> I, I try to do I try to do a fair job, you know, I mean, I think that that that's. Um, it's not like again, like what I do to me ratings. It's 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 um, it's a recommend. You know, it, in the end, it's a recommendation. This is how bad you should go out of your way to see the match if you didn't see the match. That's how I'm mentally looking at it. But um, I also think that it's not. Let me stop it right there because I actually think that is probably the best way to look at it. It is a personal recommendation. Yeah. Of the match. And and he's recommending that you watch his friends' matches more than you watch the really great talent in the industry. Hence, that's why Twinkle Toes McFinger Bang has multiple, multiple matches rated higher than Ric Flair, than Shawn Michaels, than Kurt Angle, than Ricky Steamboat, than it said name the great. Anybody ever. Because he didn't like those guys personally as much as he does Kenny, I guess. Because what's the fuck? How else do you explain it? I want all of you to watch my friends' matches, so I'm going to rate them higher than every great wrestling superstar of the past 40 years. If it's a recommendation of what matches to watch, and traditionally five stars has always been accepted as the cap, even though obviously there are a few outliers going back to your days with Norm Dooley rating matches, but five stars considered the cap, if that's your recommendation, and all of a sudden you start saying, this is six and a half stars, <laughs> what are you saying to the audience? What are you telling people? And, what? well, go ahead. I don't know what Dave's telling people. When we did that, we're telling people, hey, first of all, you can't take this fucking rating system seriously because it's just us two assing off watching these matches and imitating the TV guide. But secondly... The, the six stars was meant to say, well, this was ridiculously over and above anything that you will ever see happen anywhere. And the goddamn building almost caught on fire. And you can't just do that all the time, nor is it, again, this whole thing is not legitimate to begin with. It's a ripoff of the movie guide. But if you're going to be 
if you're going to do this, be consistent. And again, he's been doing it for 40 years. And suddenly, all this hokey horse shit that his personally anointed friends and superstars of wrestling are doing is miles better than everything that every great star of the past 40 years has done. And that indicates to me some home cooking. Yeah, Dave's standing next to a friend and they're rating the match four stars and four and a half stars, and they're pretty much in agreement, and that's fine. If the friend is consistently rating the match two stars, is Dave going to go start sitting with a different group of friends? Or is he going to stay sitting? He don't have that many to choose from these days. Talk about me fucking burning bridges. It, the, most of the people who have known Dave for multiple decades either shake their heads, roll their eyes, or avoid the phone. Well, he did not avoid this interview with Chris Van Vliet, so let's go back to this questioning about the rating of the matches. Or the ratings of the matches. Let's do this. Not nearly as important as so many other things that I do. I think the business analysis is by sure. far the most important thing. And people will get all hung up on the ratings aspect. Yeah. It's just like, you know, you're not even reading the issue with the key stuff in mind, you're ignoring the stuff or people who don't read and then get mad at the ratings. It's like, you know, read, you know, and learn. There's so much to learn. Yeah. And you're just getting hung up on a quarter of a star in the ratings. And it's just like, that's kind of like a waste of time. Well, people get hung up on the ratings when you look at specific things. Like I was blown away to learn you've only given one five-star rating to a TNA match. And I was like, come, come on. Have you? I mean, I, I was blown away to learn <laughs> Kurt Angle's never had a five star match. Yeah, like, Kurt Angle. He's had tons of four and three quarters, which is basically the same thing. It's just like the it's little. It's not the same thing. <laughs> I think anything over to me, mentally, anything over four is is great. And um, so, if you say I've never given Kurt Angle a four star match, you know, whatever. No, you've but, given him plenty of four star matches. But but, like, but I mean, five. It's like it's like yeah. Could you say that uh, the Chris Benoit match at Royal Rumble was a five star match? I was pretty damn close. But I like said Kurt Angle know. versus Samoa Joe in TNA. Hell yeah. You think so? I, I never. <laughs> I, I, okay. I was I, I, I thought there were, you know, great Kurt Angle, Samoa Joe matches in TNA. I never saw one as a, as a five star match. And I mean, it's like wow. whatever. I mean, five stars to me is like that's like freaking, you know, elite, elite, elite level, you know, like, um. You know, it, it's it's it, yeah, you know, it's the elite level. Five stars right? elite. The, it's, yeah, it's the elite rating. And so uh, again, from his own chicken lips, Kurt Angle never got five stars. Twinkle Toes has had seven. Well, because Kurt Angle wasn't elite. Well, let's go back to this. You no, know, I don't know that. You know, again, I'm you're arguing a quarter of a star or whatever, but it's like. <laughs> I, I never thought Although about it. I will it. say, whether I, I, I mean, I, I, I probably quarter or four and a half, that five star is a benchmark. That's that's a big that's a well, big benchmark for people. Yeah. Well, it shouldn't be because if you're at four and three quarters, that means I'm thinking that you should be considered for match of the year. So, um, but why yeah, why not give it the five star? Why not give Shawn Michaels versus the Undertaker at WrestleMania twenty five five stars? Um, there was, you know, I mean, at that time. When I watch, I mean, there's a couple of couple of things. I mean, number one, when I when I watched it, I thought this is pretty damn close. And whenever I get close, <laughs> when I watched it, I thought, you know, I have a cold. I got I'm not in a good mood today. <laughs> Hold on. The again, the the explanation though, the idea that it's the personal recommendation, but you're not supposed to, it, the fact that it's a benchmark for wrestlers, which is a truth, which is an absolute truth. Dave says it shouldn't be. He shrugs. 
he doesn't really want to accept even, I guess, the responsibility of that, it sounds like. No, but also, again, if you're going to do this shit, be consistent. And he hymns and haws, oh, well, Undertaker and Shawn Michaels. I, I, it was close, but golly, Twinkle Toes and Ishii was two and a half stars better than that. Or whatever the fuck. It's ridiculous. And you can't just keep on making up new numbers. They still only rate movies from one to four. We got one to five. Stick with it. It's ludicrous. Let's go back to the ludicrous argument. No, let's go back to this discussion. Chris Van Vliet with Dave Meltzer. Be like 100%. Okay, so, and I mean, two of the greatest wrestlers, I mean, literally after that match were just, you know, I mean, and this isn't, I'd already rated the match, but I just remembered, I mean, two. these are two of the all-time greats. Sure. Called me up and go, you know, what did you think? And I go, I thought that match was freaking awesome. That match was fantastic. And it's like, you know, basically one was, if I tried to do a match like that, if I did a match like that, I'd have to fight my way out of the dressing room because so many guys would have heat for me for killing everyone's finisher. Um, and, you know, I mean, and you could say that about a lot of other matches too, but. <laughs> Including everyone that Twinkle Toes has ever had and the uh, Buckaroos <laughs> as well. It's nonstop kicking out of every, it's not even just them. It's all up and down the card now. Everyone's kicking out of everyone's finish. Yeah, but uh, Michael's an undertaker. Shouldn't have killed those finishes. But, but it was a perspective. And then, um, you know, another one was just, um, you know, to, and I think subconsciously, I, I thought the same thing. When I watched Sean and Undertaker, the first one, which was great, and I almost did give it five stars. And some people think it's because of the dive, you know, spot that went wrong. It's like, nah, it really wasn't. It was, it was, I'm going to say, there was a predictableness to it. Mm that I could feel like I knew what they were doing. And sometimes that's not necessarily a bad thing, but <sighs> I, it was so long and I always knew what they were going to do. So long. Well, let me just say, I do think for my personal way of like, seeing matches, I don't give them ratings, but I'll say what I like and I don't like. There is something to that. If I watch a match, I've said it to you before. If I feel like I know what they're doing before they're going to do it, I'm assuming that's kind of what he means. It's hard to kind of get into it the way other people may. I assume that's what he means there. Well, but if, when he's talking about the length of, again, we just got rid of forbidden, got rid of, instead of finished with, got rid got of rid forbidden of. door. One was 40 <laughs> minutes, one was 30 minutes. And it wasn't Michaels and Undertaker in them either. Let's go back to this. Chris Van Vliet and Dave Meltzer. And it was mm. thrilling as hell. But it yeah. was not, it didn't give me that oh my God, this was brilliant. It was like, okay, this is what they were doing. My turn, your turn. And and it worked. It was like, again, like, look, it, it one match of the year, I easily could have given it five stars. But whatever it was, you know, when it was over, it was like I was debating. And I've done that at many matches. You know, I mean, um, you know, where it's kind of like, you know, like, is this four and three quarters or five? Well, that means it's four and three quarters when I say that. If I say five, no debate, then it's five. <laughs> And, uh, you know, is it, is it just that you no debate, no debate about Five. this <laughs> laying the law down? That should be his new catchphrase. That's fucking great. No debate. Five stars. <laughs> Do you not like the style of WWE matches no. versus New Japan or versus um, um, well, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, I think, you know, um, there's certain dynamic aspects of it in, in the in the um, sense of 
with with New Japan, the wrestlers are are technically so much better, um, and they're also better at building the perfect time for the finishes. Well, they wrestle um, a and, very and, different style, right? and they do, and they do a lot of cross ups where you you think you know, I mean, you think you know where they're going, and then they're not. They 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 take you and they twist you. And with WWE, it is different <laughs> in the sense that it's built around repetitivism, re- repetitiveness, and um, you know, a, you know, teaching the audience to pop for certain moves and then doing them. And mm-hmm. there's some cross up, but it's really about um, repetitiveness and teaching people to pop for a certain thing. And then you do it over and over and over again, so they learn this is where we pop. And in Japan, it is. It certainly exists, but there is a lot more thought to going that one step deeper of this is where we're going and they're about to pop for this. So we're going to do this and then they're going to pop even bigger. Hmm. And so that's kind of um, I think that that's, you know, that and the tech, the, the better the, they're, they're, they're they train in oh. basics a lot better. So their stuff looks better. So there's always that aspect, too. And they hit much harder. And I think that that adds to the realism aspect. Um, you know, the, I mean, it's just, you know, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's harder hitting. It's better technical. I mean, I'm talking at the top level. I'm not saying that there aren't guys in, in. Let me stop this for a moment. Please do. He was asked why. I, I forget exactly what it was, whether he rates New Japan and WWE differently, or does he like one versus did, did the other? Did he like the, did he not like the WWF style versus the other guy and he's been building up new japan ever since yeah <laughs> they're stronger they hit harder they're, they're better they, they, they twist you they turn you they twist in you anywhere, they turn you every- they what is that that was the theme song from attack of the killer tomato yes i think that i will miss her a tomato ate my sister they'll twist you and slice you and dice you and gobble you up for dinner or lunch 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 we were so far through the show without any singing. We well, were so see, close. I didn't, I didn't we want to so leave close. him. I didn't want to leave him hanging on show three hundred. And no one would have picked that song. But let's uh, go to this. Or back to this. Chris Van Vliet and Dave Meltzer, company who do that or can do that. But it's it's definitely more of a thing. And um, you know, so that's probably where um, you know the New Japan matches will. You know, and but again, like people who watch everything, you know, the the New Japan matches usually end up getting. I mean, and in any of these. Um, you know, not just me, but everyone. You could look at cage match or, you know, grapple when it existed, or or, you know, it was it was it was consistent. You know, I would look at some of those and go, like, man, you know, um, unless it's like a historical WWE match at a WrestleMania, which which I actually think that a lot of the mania matches, because they're at Mania, kind of get overrated, but that's a good thing. It's a, it's actually a good thing that you don't have to do as much, but you're at Mania, so it makes it a little bit more special. Um that <laughs> let me stop it again he's justifying what he thinks because like-minded people in small sections of wrestling websites on the internet agree with him agree with him yes um aside from those it's very difficult to see a wwe match near the top of those lists at the end of the year um and um you know but i mean again like I had, it's just it's fascinating to hear all this because it's it's, it's, it's yet, yet like a example is like for years for years not not now because things changed but for years if you look at my ratings for 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 shows um my NXT ratings were higher than I mean it's funny when when the NXT W um, AEW thing was going on so my NXT shows during the takeover era 
were always the highest yeah. because they consistently put on great matches and that's WWE product, you know? So it's not, but, but WWE as a whole, not NXT only has nine five-star matches in the entire history of WWE <laughs> slash WWF. <laughs> yeah. And there was a stretch from 97 to 2011 when there were no five-star matches in WWE. I mean, that's, I don't know if that just doesn't seem to add up to me. That's an interesting thing. I, <laughs> It's very, very hard to get a five-star match. And I mean, it still is. It's super hard. The only difference is, is that guys are so much better now. Like, like if I look back at my, um, at a match that I would have given five stars and I look back 30 years, I look at, and there, there, there are exceptions. Um, and they're usually, you know, like uh, in, in Japan, believe it or not. But, um, but for the, but for the, but even in Japan, I mean, I've seen like, you know, matches that I'd given five stars that I would look and go like, eh, it's a four and a quarter, four and a half star match today. You know, it's like, do you, do you do the reverse? Do you look at matches now and go, man, I get that four and a quarter, but that, that really is a five-star match now. No, no. I mean, I think that if anything, <laughs> it's, I think it's actually harder, but there's more of them because. Just let me stop for a second. I think it's harder. How, you're the one rating them. It's either harder or it's not harder. It's not like, I think it's harder because the council has to let me know what they think. You are the council. But besides that, it's demonstrably obvious that there are fewer really great matches now than there were 20, 30 years ago because of not only all of the great talent that was in the business at that point in time that's gone and has been replaced by guys that in most cases haven't had the opportunity to get the experience or the training, as well as the indie mindset taking over the the amateur class and nobody being in charge so there's dives everywhere and there's all this bullshit and the hokey furniture stuff there are fewer matches that you can really sit down today as a wrestling fan and say wow that was great that was two fucking pros tearing the house down exhibiting their skill you that's fur and far between these days and but he's rating them higher than those matches i previously mentioned and most of them contain his personal friends imagine that that's the problem let's go back to this he's talking about what makes a five-star match you have you know back then um you know it it was wrestlers had a different mentality in the sense of now they know it's like the mentality of going into a show used to be um you know it wasn't there wasn't as much drive to put on this incredible match which says and believe me that has its what? good and it's bad because yeah. because like again when i watch an an eight wasn't that the attitude in crockett promotions i don't give a shit i don't care who has the best match yeah <laughs> And and we've talked about it in the 80s WWF, that was the case, because for the most part, Vince was selling the sizzle, not the steak. He didn't give a shit. They had short matches in and out. But no, not in the organized wrestling business. You never went in there and say, I don't give a shit. Well, it, in fucking Rabbit Ridge, Kentucky at the elementary school, you went in and say, I don't really give a shit. But not on a real fucking show. It's it's ridiculous. Every but everybody wanted to tear the house down by having a good match that the people fucking enjoyed, that got the point across, got the finish in to lead to the rematch to get the house up so you'd make more money. And you didn't need to dive off the top rope 
through furniture to do that because it wouldn't have made any fucking sense. There's some 45-year-old in Rabbit Ridge who feels gypped right now. Well, sorry, pal, but, you know, we walked and talked on those. AEW Big Show, just an example. I feel like there's so many risks and it scares me, you know, and, and um, you know, like one risk is, is in, you know, like WWE, you might get one big risk spot in the match and it's memorable and everything like that. But when there's so many, like I watch a Darby or Sammy Guevara or somebody like that, and it's it scares me, you know, like the 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 um they they and that's one of the reasons why also the matches are you know getting these great crowd reactions because they're working for crowd reactions, sure. and the crowd does react to it. Um, and younger, hungrier guys are going to do crazier and crazier things, and we've seen that, and you know it's it's good and it's bad you know was there a was there a point in the 2000s when it was you know you were tougher on ratings because i think in the 2000s 2000 to 2010 you only had seven five-star matches for that entire decade i didn't think there were as many great the 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 matches did you just not watch tna i'm just so (laughs) (laughs) this guy likes his tna i watched i mean i watched i watched every tna pay-per-view i saw look there were all kinds of four-star matches back then and and I actually, you know, if you look back on that, the the different, you know, you'll see it. Five star match is like, I mean, to me, five star match even today should be like, okay, this is probably going to win match of the year. And when I look at that, you know, back then, you know, I mean, like now, yeah, there's more because it's just like there's there there's so much and it gets over so big in the sense of, um, in the sense of know, nobody um, watching. Guys are guys are working for that. Yeah, like, yeah, they're they're. they're they're working for his star rating. Like he's then, he's answering his own things without admitting it or answering it. Yes, and they're working for his star ratings, and that's why nobody else is watching. Because they're trying to do a bunch of fucking moves, like a bunch of the chimp cage at the zoo, instead of worrying about drawing money and making sense. The fact that the fans are reacting to a lot of it, and not in every place, as we've seen with AEW, it doesn't stop people from doing this stuff. The guys in the ring, the guys who do all the stupid things, a lot of them are doing it for Dave's rating. And he yeah. knows that. They're, but even even now, I mean, there's, you know, I'm, I'm going to hear a lot more about, uh, you know, this match should be five stars. And it's like, to me, it's like, if, if I don't think that this is going to be somewhere pretty damn high in the ballot for match of the year, yeah, then it's not a five-star match, especially now, or even even then. I mean, granted, there were years that, that the four and three-quarter or four-and-a-half-star matches won match of the year. And that would never, you know, well, that could happen now too, you know, because again, but what about like, what about the list of people who never had five-star matches? I, I mean, don't I'm even sure, worry I'm sure you're it. familiar with, with the people. I don't, wor- I don't even worry about it because it's like, <laughs> but like, these, I mean, these are legends, Eddie Guerrero, Triple H, Randy Savage, Triple, Kurt Triple. Angle, and it's crazy. Rob Van Dam. Let me stop it right there. What do you think about that? You never really think of it in that context. Who hasn't had a five-star match? Never got a dinner. Shecky Green never got a dinner <laughs> as an old Dean Martin show routine. Um, that's what I'm saying. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. He, even then, apparently, he was rating matches based on flipping and moves rather than impact and meaning. So based on his explanation so far, he's personally recommending more of these Young Bucks matches, including ones in rooms that... It didn't get as big a reaction as other matches. He's recommending those matches more than he is 
match yes. with, like he said, Randy Savage and whoever else was on that list. Because he's saying it's his personal recommendation. Five stars is the highest. Certain people have been able to get past that. <laughs> he's recommending those matches more than everything else in wrestling before it. Yes, that's exactly what he's Including saying. Including how he ranked things that he loved that way at the time. It's insane. Let's go back. Yeah, to because this. he did. He liked him as a fan, but he wasn't personal friends with people involved. How many four star matches? It's four stars is what you should be looking at, not five. Five means like it's it's a completely different animal. But, but then you got someone like Kenny Omega who has ten five or better. Matches. <laughs> yeah. So, but then if you're like, well, if fours are what matters, then fours is what matters. You know, I mean, like, hey, Kenny Omega and Will Ospreay and Misawa, you know, those guys. Yeah, but they're freaking incredible. I mean, Absolutely. they're incredible. They're incredible. And they were put in positions to have those matches where most of these guys, Kurt, as an example, I mean, if Kurt was put in a position was with in New Japan, Sawa, if that's a guy or maybe a Kobashi <laughs> or whatever, I mean, he did, he do, did with Chris. Um, and, you know, I, I, like I said, I came close with, with um, the, uh, the, um, but it's like I've always thought Angle was great. He's got tons of four star matches. <laughs> Let me stop it for a second. I don't even. Know. He's trying to justify that. I mean, I gotta say, Chris Van Vliet, in a very nice way, is kind of factually just asking him about these things, and Dave doesn't have any true answer, does he? No, he has nothing. He's got nothing, Jerry. Nothing. Oh, oh, five stars is a different beast. Explain it to me. You're the one giving it the five star. It's your beast. <laughs> four and a half star matches, whatever. First four star match with Matt Morgan. But it's like the reason he doesn't have a five, it's what, am I biased against him? I, I probably voted for him in the Hall of Fame years early. It's sure. just, it's a certain match. And maybe... Maybe he never had the perfect opponent. Maybe, I don't know. I, I don't know. It's not, I don't like think and go like, oh, you know, he's Kurt Angle. He deserves one. And nobody deserves one. And when people go like, why isn't this match five stars? I always like, man, it's like, there's never, it's like, what, what, what didn't it have? And it's like, if it's over four, it had it. Yeah. So, so when you're talking about five, five has to be when this thing's over, I'm going like, yeah, this, this if it was in the past, I would go, this wouldn't match of the year. And now, it's it's got to be man if this was if this was uh this should be talked about for match of the year even four and three quarters means it should be talked about and a five now would be a match where i would go like this would have won match of the year every you know most years when i was a kid but i mean wwe's had nine in their entire history (laughs) and and 21 in four years AEW's wrestlers work much harder to to um in that style cmll in that, style, in that style, what does that mean? In the style that he likes, which involves the floor exercise of the high school gymnast team. In that style, that style being the style that he personally recommends with a five-star rating. That's what he's beating around the bush for 20 minutes to say, but let's go back. Which is my favorite style of wrestling, by the way, or was. I mean, I like all styles. See, how many does CMLL have? I don't know. I have to pull that stat up. <laughs> I say it might be. It, it, might, it might. I don't know. It might be zero. And um, I mean, and because the CMLL style that I love is not something conducive. It's it's absolutely it conducive is, to. I think to it is board. zero. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. My favorite <laughs> style of, uh, from from childhood. Wow. Okay? 
And, and, and the reason is, is because the CMLL style is conducive to four-star matches, but there's something that makes mm -hmm. a five-star match that their style is not conducive to. And I would say the same thing about WWE's style in general, although there are exceptions. Sometimes it just the right thing and the right magic happens. And it is that, but NXT had that all the time. I yeah. would give any, I, there's many NXT matches because NXT, I think there's nine, but, but it's the style that they're working for. You know, the WWE, the NXT style was a lot more based on, um, like what we talked about, um, trying new things. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. Do, you know, taking risks. Do, yeah. Yeah. Taking not, not necessarily injury risks, but trying new yeah. things or just going and, 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 you know, giving guys more time in main events or giving, so we're getting some of the qualifiers here. Risk, time. These are things that go into making a five-star match. And generally, those things make a match worse because the longer it goes needlessly, the more chances they miss to go home and get to fuck out of there while they're ahead. And at the same time, when they take a risk trying to do shit they don't know how to do, they all fall in a fucking heap and it looks like a bunch of fucking amateur drunks. He looks for risk and time. That's why the Young Bucks work 20-minute matches where they do flips nonstop. Because that's what Dave likes. Yeah. We're matching guys up that you know are going to deliver a great match, which, which you know, was part of that thing. Whereas with WWE, that's, you know, you're, you're doing feuds and you're doing... It's, it's just a different thing. It's not really mm -hmm. conducive. Um to the style of wrestling I like. <laughs> to the style of wrestling I like and want to rank high. You know, it's, it's like, it's it's not as conducive to a five-star match. It's really not conducive general. to the style of match that you like. Bingo! It's, um... No, I, I mean, mean I, I, New, I, New I, Japan I, has... New Japan has 82 five-star or better. <laughs> well, that, I mean, I know. And, and yeah, he has one. Yeah, WWE well, is nine. Like, it just yeah. seems like you, you know, there's a certain style of match that you prefer. And that's well, I mean, totally the, way, okay. the, the way that the, the way that they build in climax. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He, I broke he my loves heart. The way my favorite climax. match of all time is he loves the way they climax and it's not conducive. And and I'll tell you what, here's an easy way to get an extra half a star, tickle the taint. Well, uh, I think we're going to finish up with this next segment here, which is Dave talking about why The Rock versus Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania in Toronto didn't get five stars. At least I think that's what this is. Let's go to this. Rock versus Hogan, WrestleMania 18. But that's a different yeah. style match. That's, that was all heat. All, I mean, it was great for what it was. That crowd reaction is unmatched. It's, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. But a th it was a three-star match, yeah. Dave. <laughs> I mean, that was, can, we, can we right now make that maybe a four-star match? Look, it's... Like, we're can talking we go about back matches. and change We're it? matches from decades ago. I think that probably... You know, I mean, like, you know, maybe, maybe we should. But I don't look back. I'm looking at the future. <laughs> yeah. You know? But I mean, like, yeah, you probably that right there, I think, is the most telling statement. We'll go back to the last bit of audio. I'm looking to the future. He hitched yeah, he, he hitched to what he thought the future was, and he tried to anoint it. And anyone that stood in the way is a problem. And, and unfortunately, he's now seeing that the greater population at large doesn't like his little friends play acting. And he can't fucking come to grips with that. Which, of course, means one thing. CM Punk is the enemy. But let's go back to this. Probably, I'm, I was probably wrong on that one in, in some ways. I mean, he, you know, heat-wise, of course. But it's all about memories, you know? It's like um, that match, you know, if two other guys did that same match, move for move, right? It'd have been yeah. nothing special. But 
you know, that's part of it. And maybe that's what I was going like, okay, if the, if any two other guys, I mean, but yeah, should it have been four? Probably. Sure. Why not? If you watch but, I mean, a match- it's like whatever, whatever, you know, it's like I, when I watched it, the day I watched it, it was very predictable to me. And maybe that was the problem, you know, that I, I knew everything they were going to do when they did it. And which isn't necessarily bad either, because that is always, you know, whatever. I don't know. If you watch a match live, <laughs> let, me, let me stop it there again. It goes on. I encourage people to check out the full interview. It is a really good conversation. Chris Van Vliet with Dave Meltzer is on his, uh, the, his, it's on Chris Van Vliet's YouTube channel, but Jim, you started this star rating business. What are your thoughts on the most famed star raider and his thoughts on the star ratings? I, I still don't know really what his thoughts are cutting through the various effluvia slide of words, except that he's pretty much admitted that he rates the shit that he likes high, which is kind of what the idea of rating shit to begin with is. But that's why the people shouldn't take it fucking seriously. It's a guide to, if a movie that you might want to watch gets a one half star, maybe you'll think again about wasting your time. But if you want to see it and it's two, three, four, whatever, you're going to watch it. It doesn't mean that much. These, not only these marks, but these fucking mark wrestlers are living and dying. We got to do enough moves so Dave will give us five stars. When they're in promotions that aren't drawing five fucking people. And again, as you just mentioned, he thought, oh, Harpo and the Buckaroos and their ilk are going to be the wave of the future and all the young people are going to like them. So I'll have more subscribers until I die because all of my old friends think I've gone absolutely batshit fucking nuts for praising these dipshits because i'm afraid i won't keep up with the times someone said yes, something and to i me. won't learn yeah learn okay he said something to someone who's a mutual friend of ours many years ago because i remember hearing about it probably like 2003 2004 somewhere in that range and the person said they told dave that they didn't like the observer as much anymore it was too much mma coverage again this is in the early 2000s and dave I forget the exact quote. I, I may have it somewhere. It was basically, it's an insurance policy in case anything happens with WWE. Yeah. Because <laughs> there's nothing else. There won't be anything else yeah. to write about. If anything happens to WWE, there goes the industry. And a part of me wonders if it was the same thought process behind hitching his wagon to the Young Bucks and Kenny Omega. I'm not saying, because look, you and me have disagreed about Omega's matches. It's one thing saying the guy's a really good wrestler. It's another thing saying his matches are the greatest of anyone ever. Or that yeah, his matches and- today could be put in any time in history and it would be the match of the year. That's your if personal... If you showed a, a Greensboro Coliseum sellout, a Kenny Omega match in 1986, they would have rioted and set the seats on fire. People would have been pointing to each other with finger bangs leaving the arena. Oh, who was that guy? Boo, boo, boo. <laughs> Did you see the fake match with the guy doing the fucking flips and pointing at everything? But I think that's a lot of it. It's Dave's personal preference. And also it's Dave's self-preservation. And I think a lot of that is kind of apparent in what he said and what he couldn't find the words to say in this interview. But here's the thing. We've easily found an audience. 
And it's bigger than the one he's got. And it's bigger than the one that the modern fucking wrestling promotions have. It's all the wrestling fans who think this shit sucks. And they're offended by it. And the same reason that you are not as offended by Kenny as I am. Because you were, even though you were a wrestling fan, you were not someone who depended on the wrestling business for your income and took that that's right. Deep level of pride in it. So yeah, yeah, the fucking guy's a jack-off. He wrestles sex toys and fucking children and does inappropriate things with his fingers up other guys' asses. But you don't, you're not as offended as deeply as I am. You can say, okay, he's a pretty good wrestler. No, no, I don't like that stuff, but I, I can. Well, yeah, I'm saying matches. you're not as offended yeah. as deeply as I am. As someone from the business, absolutely not. As someone from the business. And that's why I'm offended by anyone from the business that's not offended by this fucking ass wipe. And because they should be. And they're disappointing to me that they're not. But that's the thing when you're talking about size of an audience. The audience of people that used to watch wrestling is five times the size that it is now. And the audience of people that think that. All these fucking little soft, pansy-ass pussies and their grab-ass gymnastics are not worth watching is bigger than the audience that watches it. So why is Dave so fucking worried that everybody's not going to read his newsletter anymore? Because of access. If Dave wrote the realities of any of Chris Jericho's worst stuff over the last several years, even if you're a Chris Jericho fan, if you're going to tell me that his biggest fan doesn't think some of his stuff was really bad, in the last four years or so of AEW, you'd be lying to me. I think there was a lot of bad stuff, and I'm not a big fan of modern-day Chris Jericho. So Dave hasn't written anything negative about Chris Jericho. Do you think Chris Jericho will still be chummy-chummy with Dave and Alvarez and the Observer site if they started saying, Chris looked really bad here, or the crowd really didn't react to this match, or the music's over? And the music's over. He always said bad things about somebody. Yeah, you can critique a bad match, but you can't do it if you're afraid you're going to lose access. It goes back to this Matt Hardy Well, thing. that's what it's I'm saying. It's a cycle of self-preservation. He always said bad things about somebody, so is it that he's just gotten more worried about pissing off the wrong person, or is it just that everybody's gotten so fucking soft that they can't take it? Both. It's both of those things. You know, like I said, it goes back to the Matt Hardy thing. It's a cycle of self-preservation. Latching yourself to the young thing that you think is going to happen, or that has happened, or that's happening in the moment, whatever it is, it's an act of self-preservation. Being able to say what you really feel about these things, it's a hard thing to do, but it's something we can do here on this show, and we will continue to do it in the future. Is Uncle Dave finished? Because I've actually got to start getting ready to go and, and be really wildly relevant and make a lot of fucking money well, let's, this let's, evening. Let's not talk about any of that yet, because uh, let's not talk about any of that yet. But let's get, I, would, I wasn't going to reveal it, but it's going to happen. Let's get at least one song before we get out of here. It is there episode 300 after all. So let's go to this song. This was sent in. Seems like it could be timely. I hope it's appropriate. This is... Sent by Steve Johnson. Let me go to this. In a cluttered office in Southern California There's a man watching wrestling matches He even rates them for ya But now 
Now he's sick of the dirt sheet grind. Uncle Dave has lost his mind. He's quitting the observer, gonna test his skills in commercials. He checks the help wanted section, looking for his new start. His dream job appears, a Halloween costume model for Walmart. <laughs> and when he calls up, he's in luck. He gets to dress up just like the young bucks. <laughs> Only one important detail Uncle Dave forgot. He looks down at his feet, shaking off the self-conscious doubt he's been secretly harboring for years, and says to himself, if Mantar can do it, so can I! Kick off your shoes And show off your cloven hooves These tassels look neat, now you're a leap Four toes, two feet, Uncle Dave's too sweet A cosplayer's dream, join the elite team A man in Nicky meme Basement marks will scream. Oh, what you gonna do? Cloven hooves run wild on you. Wild on you. Uncle Dave's got hooves. Wild on you. Uncle Dave's got hooves. This young buck's costume gets five stars. <laughs> wow. Wait a minute, old. There you go. Well, there it is. Steve Johnson, Coventry, Rhode Island. And not the Steve Johnson that has done such fine work with the Wrestling Hall of Fame books. No, this is him. He took a break from his Jim Londis biography to write this song about Dave Meltzer. No, this is a different Steve Johnson here, uh, I believe. But what a song. Great lyrics. Good job there. Episode 300, one song. There it is, because we're not going to top that this week. And with that, Jim... Hold on, where is my... Please say you've lost it. The drive-thru is closed. I can never come up with a good ending. All right, well, here it is. Uh, The Jim Cornette Experience returns. It's never been away. Some people just may not have heard it over the last couple of weeks. That's right. For those of you who've been paying attention on YouTube, you can keep doing that. More content coming at you. For those of you who go to the podcast feeds... All the programs that have been on YouTube for the last few weeks will be updated to the feeds if they have not already by the time you hear this. And all the podcast feeds themselves should be updated by the time you hear this. The Jim Cornette Experience, I'm going to say early next week. We'll talk more about it later, wherever you find your favorite podcast. And of course, next week on Jim Cornette's drive through right here, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Go through the archives. Patreon. How did we say it? Patreon. Patreon. Patreon.com. I don't know why I did a... Patreon.com slash Cornet. $5 a month gets you access to the archives going back to the very beginning in 2013. This is episode 300. Go hear the 30-minute version of the drive-thru going back to 2013. Patreon.com slash Cornet. You can follow Jim on Twitter at TheJimCornet. You can follow me on Twitter at GreatBrianLast. You can hear me on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com or available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And of course, the Wrestling News every day for free, your daily wrestling newscast, thewrestlingnews.com or Arcadian Vanguard's Wrestling News, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Cornette's collectibles at jimcornette.com. What's going on, Jim? 
Oh boy, howdy, the feather bottoms are working overtime. Don't forget the classic Cornet face shirt is available. It's all over AEW television, as well as the <laughs> Behind the Curtain graphic novel, the Inside the Ropes magazine with me on the cover, and of course, the last, I don't know how many now, a couple of hundred or less of the breast cancer pink action figures with $10 from every figure at this point now going to the City of Hope. That's right. The City of Hope, not the City of Dope, but go to jimcornet.com and do all that right now. Of course, the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. Go to YouTube and search for Jim Cornette. It'll come right up. Full episodes, clips of episodes, omnibus collections, all with the very popular Travis Heckle artwork and the guest artists. The official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. The drive through is brought to you by the law office of Stephen P. New, 888-692-8084. Get even with Stephen at newlawoffice.com. But Gotta it's, sue some knucklehead that's going bankrupt without paying you what he owes you? Call Stephen P. New. That's right. More to come. But until more to come on the experience, and next week right back here on the drive-thru, for Jim Cornette, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho!